Hey guys, what's up? Week 223, and we're going to do the drawing for the Django 4K from Arrow Video right off the bat. I have the ran randomizer up. It's always such a strange word for me to say. And this is not the number. Uh, basically, it automatically starts as a number when you put the data in. I have all the, the names listed on here, so there we go. It is 21. Check the list at 21. We had a, we didn't have very many entries around 40 this time around, so not too shabby though. So um, I did it only for North America. And what was that number 21? Let me double check here. <laughs> I want to triple check. Don't want to make any mistakes. Yeah, 21. So number 21 is Matt Wells, which is really strange, and he's very lucky considering the fact that he is the new patron. And I didn't rig that. <laughs> not smart enough to rig that. Um, but yeah, so congratulations, Matt Wells. Uh, you won the new 4K of Django from Arrow Video. Great release, and uh, get me your address. I'll send it out ASAP. Speaking of 4Ks, we're going to hop into the first review, and uh, this is from Blue Underground. This is Two Evil Lies, a 1990 movie directed halfway by George Romero, halfway by Dario Argento, and I've covered this one before. This is one that I had seen a couple times, obviously being a big fan of George Romero, my favorite filmmaker of all time, and being a big fan of Dario Argento, top five horror director of all time. So, Two Evil Lies. These are both uh, based off Poe uh, stories. The Black Cat, I'm pretty sure you can't make a Poe adaptation. unless <laughs> multiple ones in one movie unless one is the Black Cat. Always in there. And uh, the Stranger one by Romero is the case of uh, Valdemar. The Strange Case of Valdemar, somewhere around that lines. And that's a Poe story I'm not super familiar with. It is a, a zombie-oriented story, which... Um, is kind of the, you know, George Romero, they would shoehorn him into that kind of subgenre of horror forever. So, uh, basically the story follows, um, it's, it's two little stories with a very weak wraparound, kind of just, uh, filming a little bit of, you know, Poe's home place and, uh, um, New England area, all that kind of stuff. And so we hop into George Romero's story and the highlight of this is the cast. It's very well acted. It's, it's, it's very professionally well done and well made short. I don't think it's as strong as, uh, Argento's, but I never really found it poor in any aspect. I think it's very good. Um, the, the cast in here is filled with a bunch of creep show alumni, including um, E.G. Marshall, uh, Mr. Pratt. And there is a shout out to Mr. Pratt in here as well. Adrian Barbeau, uh, Billy, and she's a bunch of Carpenter movies. And then um, uh, some other ones too. Tom Atkins has a nice little role in here. Um, that's why God made fathers, babe. Line from Creep Show. I'm just quoting Creep Show here because there's, like I said, a lot of Creep Show Romero alumni. And uh, the one that I didn't even notice for years was pointed out by in the commentary by Troy Haworth. Uh, he pointed out that the guy who actually plays Valdemar is the old guy in the Gordy Vale, uh, Jordy Vero uh, short, the, the, the guy who plays his father, and he's all like the several roles in that one. So yeah, it's well acted, it's well shot, it's creepy. Um, although it does seem like it would fit better as a short, a short even shorter version, because we have like a two-hour feature here, um, and one hour each for each director. Um I listened to the commentary on here by Troy Haworth, and um, the, old, the old release, had, I don't think there's any new extras on here, but listening to the commentary, it was really nice to hear um, Troy Haworth talk about George Romero, because he's so he's used to, I'm always used to hearing him talk about a lot of the Italian films and stuff, and the commentaries like Fulci or, or uh, Argento, so when he kind of dove into George Romero, he obviously had a lot of love for him too, and that was nice to hear, and uh, he, he uh, pretty much shot this one straight, you know, it's not the most amazing short, but it's a well-made, uh, 
you know, well done short. And it's only kind of um, a little shame that he didn't get to do the short he wanted to, The Mask of the Red Death. He wanted to do that Poe adaptation, and I guess Argento and, and company production kind of fought him on that, which is a bummer. It feels like Romero always kind of got, uh, you know, screwed over a little bit on his projects because he always had, you know, bigger eyes and stuff like that um, and stuff. So anyways, it, it's a solid short. Um, the second short is kind of the highlight. It's actually a really good one. It starts Harvey Keitel, which is a, is a great get for Dario Argento. Harvey Keitel obviously is in, you know, some of the classic Scorsese movies, but he's in a couple of the um, Abel Ferreira movies. And um, he's, in, he's in Bad Lieutenant. And um, he's in another one too, Dangerous Game. Um, and he's in, of course, a couple of Quentin Tarantino movies. He's definitely a cult actor and i don't mean that in like uh he's an a-list cult actor like he has a kind of a following because he's been in a lot of like classic films um so yeah he's really great in this he plays roderick usher you guys know obviously that's a shout out to more post stuff um and he is a photographer he does photography on crime scenes and he also is like kind of an artist you can tell he's an artiste because he has that little goofy hat that all french artiste would wear uh john amos is, is a cop in here and he's probably my one of my favorite parts if not um my favorite part of this whole short just because um john amos is a classic actor too but he just has that kind of detective demeanor um where he ends up being kind of really kind of like kind of hard edged to like the nasty stuff but also a sense of humor uh yeah so um anyways uh there's uh, basically some witchcraft elements added in here as, as well and, and like as much post stuff as as could be squeezed in but harvey Keitel ends up killing his girlfriend's black cat and kind of losing his mind of course and obviously they do some um what is the um the bricked up wall stuff, which would be the cost of Montiano. And then they do some, even, um, where he kind of, uh, acts like he's so great about hiding the body within the house, which would be what the, the telltale heart. Uh, so there's all these little shout outs and things to other Poe stuff. So it's a super Poe story. Uh, Argento obviously was the bigger follower of Poe compared to Romero. So, um, it's just a really nice love letter to Poe, but it has those Hitchcock kind of, uh, inspirations as well. Um, and, and Troy Harworth points all this out. So that's funny when you listen to a commentary by like one of these guys, you just like catch yourself repeating a lot of the stuff that they said. But well, I agree with that. I agree with that as well. So sometimes you feel a little like you're cheapening your review or cheapening talking about the film. Uh, yeah, but Martin Bolzum's in here, which is good casting. And again, another actress, I never noticed it was her when I thought back on it. If you would have told me, asked me who was the older actress in this movie, I would have never told you it was Kim Hunter. I would have never remembered. But it is from the Planet of the Apes movies, which I absolutely loved. Um, so yeah, anyways, this is a really fun movie. It's really well cast, actually. Like, uh, I mean, think about it. You got John Amos, Harvey Keitel, Sally, Sally Kirkland um, is in this too. It's, it's, like, it's somebody like that. She's just got a tiny, tiny little role um, um, and Martin Balsam and Kim Hunter. So it's a really good cast in here. Um, it is very funny. I think I mentioned this in the last time I covered this mo uh, movie. You see uh, Harvey Keitel just being meow, 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 like kind of freaking out, meowing the cat. Um, Savini's got a nice little uh, role in here as well. But the part that cracked me up where I was just laughing out loud to myself like a maniac was um, Harvey Keitel has obviously been going through some uh, mental problems and all the anguish and everything because he had just committed murder and the cat's driving him crazy and, and typical Poe fashion or, or at least the movies, the black cat fashions are like that. And, um, He's on a crime scene and he looks really sick to his stomach. And John Amos is asking, are you all right, man? Are you all right? He's like, he's like, yeah, fine. I just got a hangover. And he's like, well, you want to get a picture of these. And it's uh, these teeth that were extracted from this corpse. Um, and 
he just looks very ill and he's just not handling it very well. And John Amos just starts cracking up. And I just love that part. I think that was probably the highlight for me. But uh, this thing has tons of features on there. Like I mentioned, the audio commentary um, by Troy Haworth, all that, and the theatrical trailer. And that's on the 4K disc. But for the Blu-ray disc, we have interviews with Argento, Romero, Savini. Um, then we have Claudia Argento, Aja Argento, special effects behind the scenes. That's fun um, of Savini stuff. We see his house and stuff and then we have the home tour um there's one of these parts one of these is like the guy's just in the back car and savini's talking to him and they're asking ca uh, questions very casual adrian barbo and romero she's a big fan of george romero before our wake interview with arami zada who is in the uh, case of uh dr not dr uh, mr valdemar whatever the hell his name is behind the wall interview with star madeline potter one maestro and two masters interviewed the composer Pino Dinaggio, who was uh, the Brian De Palma guy. Rewriting Poe interview with co-writer Franco Fernini. Cat Who Wouldn't Die interview with assistant director Luigi Cazzi. Two Evil Brothers interview with special effects assistant Evan Burl. I really like that one because he, he kind of talks a little bit more casual. He's one of these guys I've never seen interviews. So he has a lot of information that some other people and some insight that a lot of other people wouldn't have. And then we have Working with George interview with costume designer Barbara Anderson. And I liked hers too because she mentions um, she worked a lot on Romero's stuff and eventually he just seemed like he's fed up and he moved to Canada and he just kind of never looked back. But anyways, a uh, great release. It looks good. It looks very good in 4K. It's kind of amazing that a lot of these old movies are getting remastered by Blue Underground and they're looking better than the new 4Ks that come out, uh, those movies and everything like that. So uh, wonderful and Dolby Atmos sound is fantastic on the surround system, uh, worked really well. Uh, so yeah, if you if you haven't picked this one up yet or you're interested in Romero Argento, I'd recommend this one. I think this is one that gets better with age, you know, and uh, didn't get the respect that it should have got. Um, and if it would have went as planned, there would have probably been George Romero would have been possibly involved, maybe Clive Barker. They, they mentioned all this kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm glad we got what we did, but uh, the possibilities, um, you know, seem a little bit better. Uh, I mean, that would have been very cool to have uh, um, them work together and even mentioned possibly throwing in Wes Craven. I would have loved to see Wes Craven and Dario and Romero collaborate because I don't think Wes Craven ever collaborated with any of them. So uh, not with uh, Romero or Argento. So that's kind of sad. So yep, two evil eyes. Check it out. Okay, the next one we have here is One Dark Night from MVD Rewind. And this is directed by a guy named Tom McLaughlin, who also directed Friday the 13th Part 6, one of the more popular entries in that series. So One Dark Night is 82, 83. It's debated. I think made in 82, released in 83. And this stars Meg Tilly, E.G. Daly. And those are kind of the big names for me. Adam West. How could I forget Adam West? Uh, every time I have to mention Adam West, I have to mention the quote from Zombie Nightmare. Case closed. Case closed. Um, so we have um that's kind of the setup this movie opens up amazingly like so it opens up in a super interesting way we have this like ex kind of occult psychic kind of guy he's died and that's not really the main news here what comes to fruition is that he has like five dead teenage girls in his um closet and there's all these like uh utensils stabbed into the walls and you're just like what in the hell happened here and everybody's just kind of baffled and when they move the body is uh, the the occultist uh, arm hits the ground and boom like electric electricity strikes and you're like oh wow and then what proceeds is about and i don't want to be too negative because i don't absolutely hate the movie i think it's kind of a fun film but just a, a bit a little slow and uh we have about an hour an hour of kind of uh 
a lot of character building. We have your typical, um, if you want to join this sorority, you have to do this kind of, uh, this, this deal where you have to enter a, a spooky kind of house, which is similar in the vein of Hell Knight, or there's so many of these movies. Uh, um, Night of the Creeps has a, a kind of a fraternity sorority prank gone wrong deal in it as well. Um, so anyways, Meg Tilly's character, although she really doesn't want to do it, she just wants to prove it to herself because she seems to be kind of maybe the shy meat girl. She has to prove to a couple of uh, three girls. One, I can't think of the leader's name. One carries a toothpaste, a toothbrush constantly in her mouth and one is E.G. Daly. Um, way before Rugrats, way before Devil's Rejects. And anyways, she has to stay in this mausoleum. Unknown to her that um, the, what is the guy's name? The, uh, he's got some of these weird, bizarre names. The occultist is dead, who's been buried in this mausoleum, and his powers are still kind of, still within his body. He's kind of reanimated, maybe some sort of sorcerer or necromancer, something along that lines. I would say necromancer, actually. So what happens is uh, she's kind of wandering a lot around this ma mausoleum. It's got great atmosphere. It's creepy. But um, it really takes about an hour for anything to get picked up and started. A lot of the movie is the boyfriend looking for her and cutting back to the occultist's daughter, knowing that something is up, something is wrong. There was another movie around this time that came out called Mausoleum. And uh, that one's a little bit more bonkers, believe it or not. Uh, just a crazy, bizarre movie. So that, And that's why this one originally got changed. It wasn't Mausoleum, got changed to One Dark Night, um, if I'm not mistaken. I think that they wanted to fusion to kind of subside there. I'm not sure. But uh, so, so anyways, the climax of the film is really what brings it for brings it home. And it is an amazing climax where this uh, cultist character is um, the psychic guy is controlling all the corpses. And you realize that he's been feeding off people's life force or, or kind of consciousness to survive and use this power of uh, te uh, telekinesis. And the way that's done is excellent. And all these corpses are flying around the mausoleum. And it's just it's a really creepy, well done stuff. And the last 20 minutes is, is absolutely perfect. But before that, it, it's kind of a slog to get through, to be honest. I, I'm not trying to be too negative. Um, and this was a PG film. I think they had Mormon financing. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe usually that stuff would be filled with like bad language or TNA. And you don't need to make a need that to make a great movie. I just think that the pacing is really off in the film in general. But as far as a, as a, a whole uh, film, I do think it's worth like a slight recommend because of that great ending and the setup in the beginning. But uh, this thing is loaded with tons of special features. And I know this was originally released by, was it Code Red or Scorpion Films? one of those companies but there's an audio commentary with director um co-writer tom mclaughlin and producer michael schroeder audio commentary with director co-writer and tom mclaughlin and writer michael hayes interview with director tom mclaughlin interview with actress eg daly interview with action actress nancy mott and these are some of these are beefy interviews um the the director is like 15 minutes eg daly's like 32 minutes she talks about her career and stuff like that talks about meg tilly um interview with cinematographer ha trussell uh production designer craig stearns michael schroeder producer interview with special effects crew member paul clemens alternate directors cut work print version of the film it's sd version and behind the scenes footage paul clemens photo gallery original trailer reversible artwork and collectible mini poster so a bunch of stuff on there but yeah the interviews are fairly interesting a lot of these guys just talk about how nice it was to work with tom mclaughlin he gives you get you get the impression that he's a pretty nice guy and i've heard interviews with him on podcasts and stuff and he just seems like an overall fun guy and his movies don't have like a sense of like gratuitous nature to him even his friday 13th movie yes it has some blood but it's more of kind of a frankenstein story in general and it's not necessarily that gratuitous nudity filled sleaze fest that the previous five were but i must admit i love the previous five because of that so yeah anyways one dark night if you're interested in that stuff check it out i think it's a fun movie 
um, at the very ending, but I think that it's it's a little bit hard to get to that point. And I know that a lot of people grew up with this one and they love it. And forever, it was so hard to find. Um, it's one of these ones that had been out of print on VHS for years. So when it initially hit DVD, people were very excited when it hit Street Show DVD. And then when it got that Blu-ray from Scorpion and everything like that. So now it's got another Blu-ray. So uh, keep this movie in print because it seems to have quite a bit of fans. Okay, this next one here is uh, No One Heard the Scream. And this is by the director of Cannibal Man, which is a really great Spanish horror film that made the video nasty list, more exploitation horror, serial killer thing. And this one is more of your thriller, kind of almost giallo type kind of deal. The director's name is like Eloy de la Iglesia, not to be confused with Alex de la Iglesia, uh, the other Spanish director. But uh, yeah, this one was one that I'd really not seen. Um, and I know that Severin was releasing a couple of these Spanish films, and that, that's exciting because there's a whole line of Spanish thrillers and exploitation films that actually look genuinely really interesting and good, but a lot of them don't have subtitles, so it's just like, eh. So anyways, no one heard the scream. Oh boy, this is a great setup, man. This is like a Hitchcockian setup. So what we have is this uh, this young woman. She seems to be dating this older man, and she's going to travel. She kind of travels back and forth and everything like that to him. Um, and she decides that she wants to stay and not not travel, not go through with this anymore. She has a lot on her mind. So she goes back to her apartment um, building where she's staying. It's it's uh, it's kind of being renovated at the time. So there's very sparse people in here. It's kind of lightly populated. And uh, there's only one other couple in here at the time. And she hears kind of a loud noise and she kind of wanders out and uh, looks out. And she sees her next door neighbor dumping uh, somebody in the elevator. And all you see is heels dumping the person into the elevator. And right off the bat, she runs in and um, this guy... Uh, tries to get in and tries to actually like genuinely talk to her like hey let me get in let me explain some things to you if you could just understand I, I think you would get it and it's not as bad as it looks so it's just like this weird cat and mouse stuff right off the bat but somehow he gets the upper hand and starts to real and he starts to tell her okay now since I don't want to kill you because it's harder to cover up two bodies I want you to help me dispose of this body which is very genius set up. So a lot of this movie is her driving around and them trying to get rid of this body. And there's this point where they come to this checkpoint and they're tasked to do something for these police officers that puts this whole, whole plan in jeopardy. And that's really intense stuff. And, and uh, I, I just thought that was really well constructed, especially in that kind of stop area. And when they get to the hospital, there's some, there's some good uh, play in your face straight, you know, cause I don't think I would have handled that that well. But uh, there starts to be sort of some relationship between these two, and she starts to have. You start to realize that this woman maybe kind of um, a little bit more open sexually and stuff. Well, you kind of got that idea, anyways. Well, she's kind of more, uh, just kind of has several people she may be involved with, and it kind of complicates things and everything. But uh, I, I was really happy with the way this one ended. Um, I thought that the twist was great. I thought I did not see it coming, and I don't want to spoil too much. But uh, yeah, this this is a really good thriller. And and uh, really well made. It's well shot too. It takes place a lot of good locations. We have like kind of like a, a beach house on the water and everything like that. So uh, well shot, uh, well placed locations, good suspense, good thriller. Um, there is one feature on here, um, and it's a yeah, Eloy de, uh, Eloy de la Iglesia and the Spanish Giallo interview with film scholar Dandy Annie Willis. Um, yeah. 
Dr. Andy Willis, sorry about that. He mentions um, a bunch of these movies that he's made and, and breaks them down and everything like that. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, this director was openly gay. And some of the stuff he mentions in that, you can kind of tell how certain uh, people are filmed and everything like that. But I, I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was very good. Um, yeah, and I, I do prefer Cannibal Man because that's way up more out my alley. It's more just kind of in the horror-oriented genre. But this is a good film for sure. Interesting stuff. And one that I don't think a lot of people probably have seen. And I don't think it's ever been released in the United States before this. Okay, this next one here is A Quiet Place in the Country, and the director is Elio Petri, who I believe is the director who did A Citizen Above Suspicion, if I'm not mistaken. It definitely seems like the same director. And this has Vanessa Redgrave and Franco Nero. Um, this is a real interesting kind of weird ghost story about obsession and mental illness and just... This is a weird one. This is a really hard film to tackle, and I'm sure it's... This is the kind of movie that I'm sure a lot of people have spent like tons of essays on to be honest so we have franco nero who is this kind of very popular artist and he's with this um i would guess uh, kind of well-off woman in vanessa redgrave franco nero's having a struggling he's having a problem here um with his art and everything and he just wants to kind of get away from it all he's more of an artist and less dealing with the people dealing with all that kind of stuff to be honest he can't really deal with the, the sales and the business and you know he wants to live for art not for money and everything like that so one day he is kind of um he he spots this uh, house that looks like it had been, um, it's in really poor shape. It has some damage from the war and everything like that. And he just is infatuated with it. He wants to rent it out so he can do his art paintings and artwork there and everything like that. So they work out a deal um, against uh, Vanessa Redgrave's best wishes because she obviously is not unlimited money funds and everything. So he moves in there and right away um, there's some sort of haunting quality about it. Every time there's a woman in the house that's not, you know, um, like things kind of go towards them, bad things, especially Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, it's more so just her, like the, the ceiling will fall and everything. And he becomes obsessed with the woman who previously lived there. And it seems that the whole town had a relationship with this woman woman they all knew her um they all were romantically involved with her and her death was very tragic involving a, a nazi airplane and all sorts like that a gunning plane so like as he starts to dig deeper in the story we start to see him kind of unravel um it's very very stylized and, and weird like kind of how it's shot very very 60s if that, that makes any sense kind of like the art style and everything um and, and nero's excellent in it you can tell him he's like kind of like losing his grip and digging deeper into this and being infatuated with this person you start to find these little weird secrets about the house like and uh and the mother it's just kind of like in a way it feels like a um uh like a ghost story in the sense of the changeling where you're trying to figure out the story of this but it has like a, a bigger sexual drive to it and sexual nature to the film anyways i thought this was a really well made well acted movie really creepy and bizarre and just completely nuts um kind of one of the kind there's an audio commentary of film historian author try howarth and an interview with franco nero i didn't get a chance to dive into these features although i really should have this is a screen factory release i thought it looked really good but uh, there's some great visuals as well especially in the beginning you kind of kind of understand who these people are and everything just by the way that they buy all these things and, and what they do with everything and there's also a lot of weird dream sequences reality blurring with fantasy just a good film I, I would recommend checking it out if you guys haven't seen it um, really, really good stuff okay this is kind of a first time watch for me uh, I'd never seen this one uh, 2011 I believe or 2012 I think it is this is Sinister starring Ethan Hawke um, it has some uh, smaller roles from other people like Vincent D'Onofrio um, the Eddie, Ca Eddie Spaghetti grown up Eddie Spaghetti 
Freddy from the newest uh, rendition of It um, as Detective So-and-So. And it has Fred Dalton Thomas Thompson, I think is his name. And there's one of these guys with three names. I always recognize him, though. Um, so, yeah, Sinister. Um, I can't think of the woman who plays his wife uh, in this movie. But she just she has, like, an Australian accent. and um, uh, So, anyways, Sinister. All right. This uh, follows the story of a crime writer who... Uh, had had a big hit in this book called Kentucky Blood years back, and after that he really he it really kind of uncovered a part of the case. So he was like flying high and mighty, got his fifteen minutes of fame, and after that he wrote kind of some books that just didn't really do well. He's struggling, and he ends up kind of like it, you could tell that what he does takes its toll on his family. He has a wife and two young kids, and 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 everywhere they go they're just kind of despised because they move to the location, and he kind of studies the case and just basically calling cops are stupid and everything like that. It's just he just is not a well-respected person in the community that he's in. Um, so he starts to, he, he wants to move into this house um, where actually a whole entire family was killed. He doesn't tell his family that the murders actually took place in said house. So uh, basically what he does is he moves in and he starts working on the story. And it turns out that the family actually was hung right in the backyard. He ends up finding upstairs in the attic a box of tapes, a box of 8mm reels, actually, which is insane, and he starts to watch them. And what these appear to be are um, a bunch of murders. And he starts to dig deeper and try to figure everything out, and he starts to get help from one of the uh, the deputies in the area, deputy so-and-so, and they kind of form a, a shaky friendship. And Ethan Hawke starts to see creepy things around the house. Um, the missing children of all the cases, every case had a missing kid. And uh, they all seem kind of tied together. And he starts to notice this strange character who's in all the 8mm films that uh, some drawings he's found refer to him as Mr. Boogie, Boogity or Boogity. But in reality, he's Begooled or Begooled. He's like some sort of uh, demon of some sort, possibly. But so that so it's it's generally very creepy. It's a very good setup. I love the idea of including the eight millimeter films and uh, the interactions he has with the sheriff, Fred uh, uh, Dalton Thompson, are, are amazing. Like in the very beginning, he, ha he has this interaction, this discussion with him. And he says, "You know, Kentucky Blood was a you got that right. It was a very well written crime story. But your other crime stories." And he starts breaking them down and saying all these things. And it's just their interactions are really great between them. The interactions between him and Deputy So and So are very good as well. And um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio comes in a small role as kind of like an occultist expert doctor, and he kind of shines some light on some of the video footage and some of the objects he sees in there, kind of uh, breaking through on the case. But uh, yeah, it's a dark movie um genuinely it has some good scares and a lot of the scares come from the the eight millimeter films for me the jump scares like with the kids and stuff is very generic it's very of the of you know that uh, like scary spooky kid jumping out from under the bed stuff and um eh, so too many of those can make you just roll your eyes it's kind of a trope that i get a little bored with and kind of laugh although sometimes they're effective and uh if you're really into it sometimes they get you really good i know that annabelle creation got me a couple times with that kind of stuff but um some of that stuff in this um it's 2021 20, now even though they've been doing it for years it just it felt a little dated for me um but that's just a product of its time I, and i don't think no matter what time it is i just never really fell much for those kind of scares in general 
But actually, the long kind of creepy setups and stuff like that, I think, are well done. And the idea of how the murders are taking place and, and more discovering of it. Like, if you set a mystery around the murder and you're figuring it out with the, per the characters in the movie, it just really works. But I did have some problems here. The wife obviously has some issues with what he's doing, and good reason. I mean, Ethan Hawke in here, he's so immature. He had that one moment of, like, fame, and he doesn't feel like he should ever have to do any of that stuff ever again. Like, he's like, this is my dream. I don't want to have to teach or write textbook. It's like, God forbid you have to work for... Uh, I know he's working on that, but it's like, it just becomes a certain point where you're like, oh man, how immature and spoiled and egotistical are you that you might have to, you know, break your back a little to provide for your family. And you, you kind of see that they just bought this house and they have a second mortgage. And then you see their old house and you're like, man, talk about house poor. Talk about living without of their means and, and just not thinking straight before they did something like that. I mean, it's just once you have one book sale, you're just going to think you're set for life or something like that and you see the interviews with Ethan Hawke and they're obviously trying to set that up that he has some ego and he's obviously having some sort of um, uh, turmoil within himself and everything like that and, and it's there uh, but it still doesn't make me care much for the character of Ethan Hawke in here just kind of being a very um, egotistical selfish person in general uh, putting his kid's life at risk so like you never really feel much for him I don't at least um and I never really captured maybe the obsession. He doesn't have so much like an obsession going down that rabbit hole like you would assume a character like Frank from Hellraiser had. Um, I feel like some of these characters get like this deep obsession like the character in Pi. Like that guy is, he's crazy possibly, but he's also obsessed and I get that obsession um, or something like that. I never really got his obsession in here. I felt like it was more of an ego drive. So you're just like, oh, I just don't really... His motives are aggravating. I know he wants to provide for his family, but he also comes across as such a little baby. And just not very smart for being a writer. But I guess that's maybe the reason he only got it right once and not a couple times. And maybe just became like an exploitative guy trying to make a buck. And, and he's fighting with that his whole time. Which is interesting enough, I guess. And especially made by an artist's point of view, it could be even more interesting. But doesn't make me want to watch him. And I don't need to like a character to find him interesting. Um, I just think that um, a couple different changes here and there could have made him more interesting because he has some interesting stuff about him. Um, when him and his wife argue, um, it comes across really melodramatic in a cheesy way where it's just like lifetime original kind of stuff and i felt like this director's other work um exorcism emily rose had a lot of lifetime original shit in it too uh, so maybe that's just his style but i cringe sometimes when they were arguing it just felt really cheesy and um it's kind of funny because she's like the most well-spoken human being on earth it's just like your college professor yelling at you with every word in the vocabulary <laughs> so it's just like oh man oh but it just it just came across corny for me. And I never really cared much for the family. They didn't seem to have much character. That's just my personal... I, Ethan Hawke did. So I, I kind of gravitate towards side characters anyways. And I felt the side characters were better done in this movie than the main characters. Not in any really acting part to their family. It's just maybe they're more interesting to me. Detective So-and-so or uh, Deputy So-and-so was really fun. I think that guy's a good actor. I think he has a good presence and I think he has a good mixture of comedy and seriousness and I like that guy. Um, I liked him in it too. Uh, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is always good and Thompson's always a, a very solid actor. So no complaints there. So uh, yeah, um, part of it's really good and part of it's kind of cheesy, but all in all, I think it's a, it's a really good movie. The ending is 
is a knockout, and I like the twist, uh, how the the killings happen and everything like that. So Sinister, a good movie, uh, one that I had never seen, and good character design on the actual villain too. So check check that one out. The eight, something about somebody watching eight millimeter film or finding clips online or rewatching videos and seeing things they didn't notice first is just a it's a I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. See, uh, see like No Roy the Curse is the is one of the better ones at that. So and uh, what is the Occult is another great one by the same director. Koji um, Shichirashi or whatever the hell his name is. So anyways, uh, yeah, Sinister, check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley. I do think it's worth watching. Okay, this next one is the remake of Maniac. Uh, okay, so you guys know me. I'm a big fan of the 1980 Maniac by uh, Bill Lustig. Um, it's one of these ones that it just never really gets old for me. Pop it up any, pop it in any time. Uh, it's had so many releases, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, and every time I watch it and I love it and I have no complaints about Maniac. Joe Spinell, he's a king, right? So take me back to 2011 or whenever they announced the remake of Maniac and they said, Elijah Wood's starring in it. And I was like, what? I don't understand. This is years ago. I was a much dumber person than I not gotten that much smarter but i was just like i don't elijah wood why would you put elijah wood in that role that's so weird i just don't get it and then i kind of come to when i finally watched the movie i was like oh because they're going for something different different but the same which i think somehow you want to remake it so you remake it but you kind of capture the original spirit of the original somehow or show shout outs and love to the original and I do think that this remake does that. This is produced by Alexander Aja. And this director, I think he only did another one uh, called I Devil, which I reviewed years back and I don't remember remember very much. This one's the much better film. Um, so basically, it's all point of view. And so you think Voyeur, you know, it's kind of perfect for a serial killer uh, film. It's a point of view movie, which puts you in the element, makes it very creepy. And Elijah Wood as Frank Zito. And he's more of the type that um, seems like he would be kind of an artist that worked on the mannequins and everything like that. Because that element from the original with the mannequins. Um, he obviously has the mommy complex like the uh, first film and he is a serial killer. Um, but it has to be updated because he uses internet and stuff like that. It's just a different time. So um, right in the beginning, uh, they show this kind of murder where he's watching point of view. And that point of view stuff reminds me of the stuff right out of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer where they have the camera and Otis is out the window and he breaks it. And he's like, watch, stick your head out the window. That whole scene right there, like all that, like just the entire movie is kind of like that in, in some aspects. Um, so in the very beginning, you, you really feel kind of grossed out because you have this, this woman walking the streets and all these guys are catcalling her. She can't get a taxi. And you're just like, man, it's not seem like a very friendly woman towards women at all and uh he kind of takes advantage of that and he ends up following you in her apartment and a brutal murder takes place and uh elijah wood's really creepy in this and i think that like the, the idea that he's like this small meat guy that has these these issues and he preys upon women and everything it works really well and always beautiful women instead of being in new york it's like an la film so um instead of having like a lot of that aspects like in new york like the grittiness um it has these people that are always uh looking great and fantastic and a lot of the people he encounters are just awful people like they may be pretty on the outside but they're not very pretty on the inside they're rude they're assholes and uh the love interest in this movie that he comes in contact with mentions that you know um 
Frank Zeno makes a comment about, you know, a lot of these mannequins have more personality than um, the people I encounter. And he, he says, I think we have some of the same friends. Therefore, making a statement on the people that she interacts with in her everyday life are just not very pleasant. And that's probably why she's drawn to Frank, because as weird and creepy as he is, he's not this outwardly personality and boasting himself. He is, I guess, genuine, even if he is a creep. And she also, I believe, is French, so maybe she's not picking up on a lot of these social cues in America that this dude's a nut. <laughs> maybe those are international social cues i don't know i've never been to frank i've never been to too many out in the united states but if you've seen frank zito in the maniac remake you know he's a creep uh right off the bat but he does it's elijah wood so he has that nice look to him kind of friendly non-scary threatening look to him too so people put their guard down um there's a, there's a second kill in this movie and the first like a kill in like the first 20 minutes and this second kill is the most unpleasant they use like an internet hookup and just the interactions and this girl comes on to him strong and it's just really creepy and just it's just a really explicit and perversion and, and voyeurism and it's really well done at the same time so I, um, I like that they kind of play more on the mannequins here that he's like talking to the mannequins and when he looks at them he sees them as actual people which ties greatly into the ending here um, which is also a great ending in the original but uh, yeah um, I just think this film works really well and one of the biggest uh, proponents, I mean, one of the, not proponents, I'm a, I would be the proponent, but one of the biggest um, positives about the movie is the music by Rob. Um, I think Rob, uh, did he do a lot of the, um, I want to say, did he work on, did he work on the um, Refn movies or am I mistaken? Um, maybe not. But anyways, his score in this movie is, is top notch. It's, it's one of these creepy movie scores that just elevates the movie to next level. And the next movie I'm going to talk about has one of those as well. And I really think the score in this film bumps it up in an entire star. Uh, it just fits perfect. It's creepy. Um, genuinely a great score. Elijah Wood's uh, great, fantastic performance as well. The ending I love. I love the ending of this movie. Um, and you see how he interacts with other males. How this male is really aggressive towards him and he doesn't do anything about it. Like, he's just such a wimp. Um, and the ending is very satisfying. Um, a, a great shout-out to the original, um, for sure. And uh, they do end up redoing the poster scene, which is lovely. It's kind of a lovely uh, visual shout-out there. Anyways, I would really recommend the remake of Ra Maniac. I know a lot of people probably don't love it. I do I do like the first one, the original, better, just because the aesthetic. I'm just more of a 70s, 80s kind of aesthetic guy, so it's going to it's gonna speak to me a little bit more and that real gritty feeling. But I think this one is a, is a great update. Um, and switching it to L.A. I think works well, too, because um, they even make a, a reference to it. I thought uh, the girl says, I thought you would be like this long, black haired, pockmarked, greasy. Like they're kind of hating on Joe Spinell there a little bit. But, hey, um, I, I get what you're getting at. But leave Joe alone. Joe's the man. Everybody loves Joe Spinell. So uh, anyways, uh, good film. Well, I really enjoyed this remake. It's probably when I think of remakes, it's probably one of the better ones, along with The Hills Have Eyes, who Aja was involved with as well. So, um, and I mean, the classic 50s remakes to 80s movies are, are the best. But when we start getting in that frame from like these ones, I would say this one and Hills Have Eyes are both great remakes um, that stand out. I do, I do like the Night of the Living Dead 1990 remake probably better than any of them too, though. I'm a sucker for Romero style films. It's a Savini directed movie. Um, and what else? Um, I'm trying to think of a couple more. I do like, I don't hate the Dawn of the Dead remake. Um, don't love it as much as I used to, but I don't hate it. I like it. Um, so yeah. Um, anyways, Maniac, great movie. Great. 
Okay, I had not watched this one for a very long time, and it is uh, 2013, It Follows. I saw this one in theaters, and I remember um, it just being really stood out with stood out to me and being visually amazing and again the soundtrack the soundtrack made this freaking movie the camera work and stuff like that works really well too the long shots and you know something's in the background you're not sure what it is it just that all that stuff works really well in this movie so it follows uh kind of took the world by storm when it came out it was a very popular movie uh and uh, it's just a weird plot, kind of one of these ones that takes elements you think from like, um, I want to say kind of Nightmare on Elm Street with the suburban kind of life, but also maybe Soul Survivor at the same time and Final Destination. It feels a little bit like these kind of movies, but also its own deal. So we have this... Uh, the opening of the movie is fantastic. We have like this this music kind of building up and it just sets the tone here. A girl runs out kind of like underdressed and there's leaves on the ground, everything like that. And it just, I don't know, it captures suburban horror perfectly. And one of the only movies that I think does that as well as, you know, kind of Craven stuff, early suburban horror, um, like Nightmare on Elm Street. I feel like upper middle class suburban horror, uh, Wes Craven had that down on, down on lock, right? So I think that this one feels most kind of like a Wes Craven movie, if that makes any sense in, in some ways. And again, it's it's better concept than, I mean, I don't want to say the execution is poor because it's not, but some of the story stuff, you start to question, you're like, what, how this, how, and I don't really have that big of a problem with it, but you could probably poke holes through some of the logic and, and the stuff that's going on. But then again, if you're basing the logic of the story, how it works, you're basing it off a person who doesn't really know either. So uh, what happens is we have this, I think there are college students, college age kids. She, um has a group of friends, a sister and that. And she has like a neighbor boy who's like kind of obsessed with her childhood friend and everything like that. She ends up going on this date with this, this young man and one night they have sex and he ties her up afterwards and explains to her that she has been infected with something like kind of like a STD. But now that there's something that's going to constantly be following her and he tells her to wait, it's going to show up eventually. They're kind of like in a deserted area, like this burnout building and everything like that and there's a lot of that kind of stuff in here too they'll go to like detroit and film there and all these abandoned houses and it just really leaves a great atmosphere especially when you have that music kick in you're just looking at kind of messed up houses drug houses and shit like that and kind of industrial areas completely torn worn down and then you have that music come in and you know something's following you it's just alone that's that's really good stuff but so she ends up spotting this uh, this naked woman walking towards her, and um, only the people who are infected with this can see it, and it's like a chain. So if this person, this thing that follows you, kills you, it goes to the person that gave it to you, and so forth and so forth until it ends. But uh, it's just a strange idea and a great concept, and and very creepy. So um, basically, she starts to lose her mind a little bit, and her friends are trying to help her as much as they can. And soon, most of them realize that something is going on. There's an invisible force that they can't see that only she can see, and it can take multiple shapes and different shapes. And the choice, the choices that it picks are some people she knows, some people that will make it easier for them to get in. Other times, it'll make it harder for them to get it and it's just like strange and sometimes just to make it more of a, 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 a scary figure and everything like that so um, one of the really good scares in here is the when she's in the college class and she looks out the window and there's this old woman kind of like in like a, a, like a, a nightgown, like a hospital gown walking towards her. I thought that was really effective and everything. So uh, there's some logic like at points you're like, well, you start to question like it, it, sometimes it's not following. It stops or how do you, you know, if you lock the door, it's just kind of uh, one of these questions where you're like, I don't know the science of it, but I guess it's supernatural. So it's hard to determine. 
And I know some people complain that, well, they set the rules here and then they break the rules. It's like, yeah, but the rules were explained to you by a young kid. And I know people would be mad about Nightmare on Elm Street too. He gets you in your dreams. And then like, but nobody complains that the, he's pulled out of the dream at the very end. But like, that's the first movie. They, they're they setting the rules in the first movie. Well, this is the first it follows. So if the rules change halfway through it follows, it's still setting the rules. You know what I mean? Like now if you're complaining about a sequel that breaks all the rules, like 28 weeks later, that doesn't even seem like it's a sequel to 28 days later or Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is just kind of like not a sequel. You know what I mean? The rules are all messed up. But when you start getting into the science of supernatural figures and trying to like say what the rules are and whatnot, although 28 days later, 28 weeks later, I think it's a little bit more kind of be held responsible because it's like, a, you know what I mean? It's a little different. You know, it's not necessarily supernatural, more in scientific experiment, hell gone wrong. So, but you start to get these ideas and then I guess you could say the science mutate, whatever. But uh, you start to get to these like movies like Nightmare on Elm Street and you just like the science of Freddy Krueger. I always say that. It's like, go ahead. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Try it. You can, you can argue until your face turns blue. You'll never be able to explain how he's in your dreams or why this mo- episode, this movie was like this and this one was like this and how he pulled to this and how he can't do this and this, whatever. It, it's just, it's just, just, you have to let some things go. And I think, and it follows, if you're enjoying the movie enough, like you're like, well, how come it died in the water or did it die in the water or the electricity in the water? And the way they try to capture the, the monster at the end seems definitely like some teenage, like young person stuff with like, we'll throw the electronics in the water. It's just like, is this the end of Chud 2 or something? What the hell's going on? Um, but anyways... I think it's a really good movie. I think it has genuine scares. I think the score is excellent. I like the lead character. There's some really kind of dark stuff in here and weird moments. Um, And uh, did I mention that when the It Follows Creature finds you, I'm pretty sure it's fucking you to death. Uh, So I don't even, it's like a succubus or some shit. Uh, Anyways, It Follows, good stuff. Okay, this next one is another rewatch. I'll be brief with this one because I covered a couple years ago, but it is Mandy. Uh, Yeah, that's by uh, Panos, Panos Cosmatos. Uh, director of the Beyond the Black Rainbow, which I still need to watch. I should have watched that one instead of rewatching Mandy, but hey, what am I going to do? Um, starring Nicholas fucking Cage. That's right. And what's the actress in here? I got to give the actress who plays Mandy a shout out because she's also in, she was just in, um, what the hell was the, um, the new one by Brandon Cronenberg. It was in my top 10. I can't even remember the name. Why am I just forgetting the name of that movie? Um, I literally just forgot the name. I'm looking back to see Possessor. I literally had to look back on the shelf to see it. Possessor. I forgot it. What's this actress's name? Uh, Andrea Riseborough. Anyways, uh, she's top notch. And uh, Linus Roach is also really good in this movie. But uh, Richard Brake's in here too. Before I might as well mention it. But uh, yeah, this is kind of a longer film. Um, and the way I would explain this is it takes place in some weird heavy metal boot world. Um, but Nicolas Cage, like he's this guy, he's a lumberjack and it seems like he's kind of a quiet keep to self guy. And the only person he really wants to interact with and, and talk to is Mandy, the love of his life, who is this, uh, beautiful artist type who has two different color eyes. And, um, one day, uh, this cult leader named, played by Linus Roach ends up spotting her on the road when he seems to be tripping on some heavy drugs. Him and his, he becomes infatuated with Mandy immediately and he must have her. And so he sends his cult out who use this magic horn of some shit or this crazy horn to call these, these, uh, the, this crazy biker gang that has gone, taken too many drugs and completely end up monsters. They look like Cinnabite bikers from hell. Um, well, Cinnabites are from hell, so that's kind of a double there. But uh, these uh, bikers from hell that look like Cinnabites is more like it. So they end up kidnapping Mandy um, and beating the shit out of uh, Nicolas Cage, kidnapping him as well. 
And uh, he basically, Linus Roach says, you're going to join me. And she laughs in his face in the most beautiful act of defiance ever. So um, th this sets forth uh, them to do some awful things to both them. And Nicolas Cage kind of... Um, is going to get revenge and this turns into a revenge film uh the colors are amazing uh it's definitely this weird world where like the reds are red they they light up the whole entire sky it's shot in a beautiful location which i would imagine is canada wilderness canadian wilderness excellent stuff and like mandy you know there's like metal music references and stuff and the shirts that uh mandy wears and everything and she was obsessed with kind of like planets reading stuff like that so as the movie progresses and Nicolas cage becomes more unhinged and more drug fueled on his uh revenge Mission, the world kind of turns into that like we have these bright lights brighter lights and we have the skyline now at the very end being beautiful and looking like space and everything so um it's just this weird kind of ordeal so uh Right off the bat, you kind of get the impression after the thing, um, Nicolas Cage walks in and he sees this dumb commercial Cheddar Goblin, which has become infamous. And the, you kind of realize the world is, the life goes on. Even if you're miserable, the world doesn't care. And he goes in and he has this break where he breaks down and starts drinking all this alcohol. And I've got the impression, because he was offered a drink in the very beginning, that he was some sort of recovering alcoholic, recovering drug addict. And seeing Mandy, and we see the, their interaction at the very end of the film when they first met, and he's wearing the shirt, his favorite shirt, if anybody's seen this, the interaction and him meeting Mandy and being together, he kind of cooled off and became a different person. He calmed his violent streak. or And he seems to have some know-how of violence if, when he is in his encounter with Bill Duke. So he kind of calms himself with Mandy's presence and that's all that matters to him. And maybe all that she, all that matters to her is Nicholas Cage. So after that happened, like he kind of lets loose and he starts to lose it. He, he ends up going and visiting an old friend who is Bill Duke. And that encounter is my favorite in the movie probably because Bill Duke just can deliver any fucking line. He's just such a great actor. If anybody doesn't know who Bill Duke is, he's uh, an actor that pops up in a couple Arnold Schwarzenegger favorites, commando and predator. He's uh, Mac and predator. One of the best characters, hands down, turn around, turn around. I don't, I don't care who you are back in the real world. I'll bleed you real quiet. Love that. Um, but he's also a director, and he directed some movies like Hoodlum and Deep Cover. He's just a really talented guy. A Menace to Society, he's got a great role in that. You done fucked up, you know that? I used to say that all the time. He's like, you said you bought the bottle of beer. Anyways, he's just a fantastic actor, and he delivers his lines so well in this. And it was just, when I originally watched this, I was just taken back how great Bill Duke was with Nicolas Cage and their interaction. I was just like, holy shit, it's Bill Duke. Get back with Nicolas Cage. It's so cool. It's, just like, it's like a fever dream. I never imagined Bill Duke being in this movie. And then I see him, I'm like, that's some good stuff. So... He basically starts his revenge-filled crusade, um, and he, he fights the bikers first. And he doesn't have good chances, according to Bill Duke, but hell, it's some excellent, crazy stuff. These bikers are gross. These are, like, from a different movie sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, um, you see, like, some of the carnage they've caused, and one's got this seven deal going on, if you guys know what I mean, and I think and I think you do. There's some Joe Bob for you. Uh, when I say seven, I'm talking about the lust uh, crime there. Uh, so, yeah, and he ends up fighting them, and he goes further up to, to get the cult and uh, fighting and just massacring people, and the kills are more brutal than most slasher films films to be honest and just bloody and the colors are amazing and it gets over the top over the top until there's a fucking chainsaw fight and any movie with a chainsaw fight is a movie that i want to be a friend of um so the only ones i can think of are texas chainsaw 2 and motel hell which are both bonkers ass movies um and i think this one might be more bonkers um maybe not than texas chainsaw 2 it's kind of hard to do but maybe uh, so anyways it's just a beautiful colorful movie um nick cage going completely insane he's used right um and that first line of 
the beginning where he's like, you ripped my favorite shirt. You're just like, what is wrong with this guy? And then you see why it's his favorite shirt. He was wearing it when he met Mandy. Um, so there's lots of beautiful things here. The bad guy is great. He's doing the best Richard Lynch ever. If you can't get Richard Lynch, get this guy. But I'm not saying that as an insult to him because the way he delivers his dialogue is great. Um, just kind of like the Richard Lynch thing, you know what I mean? It's just like the right amount of raspy voice. Um, but <laughs> I just love it, especially when he's laying in the bed the first time you see him. Kind of has this big dialogue when he's like, and he's talking to the woman. He's like, you disappoint me. It's just such a Richard Lynch kind of deal. Anyways, he's one of my favorite actors, if you guys haven't realized that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, just a great movie. Really enjoy it. Lots of colors, lots of violence, lots of revenge. I love my revenge. Um, and I know that I've heard interviews with the director, Panos, Panos Cosmatos. He's the son of George P. Cosmatos, who did some of my favorite movies, Tombstone. Um, uh, he mentions that he wanted uh, to do a revenge movie. He's watching a lot of Friday the 13th. He's watching Death Wish films. That's kind of really what he wanted to go for, and I love that. So anyways, just an excellent movie. Um, really, any, any any movie that has Cinebites as well eh, is, is probably okay in my book. So Mandy, great stuff. Okay, this is the Patreon pick from Jonathan Wilhelm, and he picked a legendary classic, Beverly Hills Ninja. That's right, with Chris Farley. Um, okay. This is 97, 98. I'm a big Chris Farley fan. I think everybody was. I was born in 86, so I grew up watching SNL. I used to rent the old tapes. Me and my cousin, the best of so-and-so. We used to watch all that. We liked the old SNL, too, from the 70s. Not so much the 80s, but we love the 70s and 90s SNL. Um, Chris Farley um, was, was such a funny guy. You know, Tommy Boy, I would vouch for any day. I think it's a genuinely great movie on top of being very funny. Uh, Black Sheep, I think, is good. Almost Heroes, not so much. Um, his roles in stuff like Wayne's World and Coneheads were, were very fun. Um, um, Airheads, he's very funny in it. I'll improvise. Um, Dirty Work, in one of his last roles, he's absolutely golden in. So Beverly Hills Ninja was kind of like the one where he was just the, the main guy. It was kind of a vehicle for him, okay? It didn't get very good reviews. Most people consider it trash. I don't even... I read places where Chris Farley didn't like it. I don't know how accurate that is. I know that he was bummed out. Maybe, it, maybe it's true. But the thing is, as an 11-year-old kid, Beverly Hills Ninja was about the funniest thing I've ever seen, okay? And rewatching it as an adult... All right, it's not as funny. All right, I get it. It's just a comedian that you either like or hate just doing his, hey, I'm dumb, big guy. And you know what? I don't care because I like that guy so much that I'll watch him do anything. I'll, I'll watch him just do nothing. All right? So uh, I'm a fan of Beverly Hills Ninja. I'm not going to stand here and tell you it's the, it's the golden thing ever. It, it's gold. It's amazing. It's super clever. But I enjoy it, and I think it's funny, and I think it's decent for what it is. I think it is good for what it is at points. So um, let me just explain the plot. It's probably something. It would, it's just one of these dumb kind of plots. Okay. Uh, Chris Farley was this kid that washed up ashore this island, I imagine, this isolated location, and it was ran by ninjas. They had no choice but to raise them themselves. Chris Farley ends up growing up to be this. He's this white guy, the only white ninja here. Uh, he's trying to become a ninja. He's a klutz. He's an idiot. He screws up everything. His uh, Robert Chow, I think is the guy's name. He was uh, Liu Kang. He's he's probably the best ninja of the place. And I wish this guy um, got more work. I wish he never disappeared because he was in this in Mortal Kombat. And he was, he's actually really good in both. I just don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he quit acting or did something else or just was written off. I, I'm not sure, but I think he's pretty good in it. He plays Gobei. Um, <laughs> anyways, one time's when all the ninjas go out and um, he ends up kind of staying back and this woman um, shows up named Sally Jones, which isn't a real name, but, but Hagaru of the Takadora Dojo doesn't know that. So she convinces him 
to kind of go to Beverly Hills and spy on her boyfriend. Or no, he's not even in Beverly Hills. She basically, she's from Beverly Hills. Spy on this uh, this guy who's making a deal in Japan. He witnesses a murder. He actually gets blamed for the murder because he's an oaf. And um, he decides to go to Beverly Hills and find her. Um, and just kind of figure out what the hell's going on with the case. The sensei, or the the master, or whatever, doesn't really trust him to go alone, so he sends, of course, Gobei with him to keep and be his eyes and ears and kind of protect him. What we have here is a fish-out-of-water story of Chris Farley just going to the most fancy hotel using gold to get in and just being an absolute oaf and idiot. It's very funny. You know, he puts his shoes outside the hotel. They keep getting swept up. Jokes like that. Chris Rock is in here as a, as a person that's like a bag carrier at the hotel, and he ends up being his disciple, disciple and everything like that. And, uh, Chris Farley is teaching him a whole bunch of stupid shit we have a role in here by um will sasso who actually worked with a uh, uh, um, happy gilmore too which is crazy because will sasso was like 20 when this movie was made will sasso always just looked really old um he's from mad tv so he plays chet walters ink specialist uh nice nice jacket who shot the couch still laugh every time but his performance is really funny in this so basically uh, chris farley falls in love with this woman and does everything but he's kind of being used at first but it's a it's a lighthearted comedy and it kind of comes through at the very end, right? Um, some of the fighting I think is fun. Um, at the end, I think it's really uh, hype hype inducing when uh, Farley freaks out and he's like, "I may not be one with the universe," but uh, and he's like, "I may not be the best ninja. I may not be one with the universe." But uh, that whole scene where he's like defending his friend is great. Um, I like I said, I really like Farley. Um, his facial expressions are very funny, um, especially the stuff when he's dressed as the the chef. Um, like a lot of this stuff seems like it's taken right out of like the old like um, John Candy playbook here like who is harry crumb where he has that dumb <laughs> that, be- that beard on harry crumb um that's just such a silly movie um and everything's didn't you have a beard no and it falls off like all that kind of stuff like putting the hero in disguise bad disguises that are probably considered racist nowadays and just having him do dumb shit it, it just i know it's outdated comedy i know it's low-brow, low-hanging fruit stuff, but a lot of it makes me laugh, and just because it's Farley. Um, the soundtrack's really good, too. I mean, as much as you can incorporate kung fu songs, but kung fu fighting is actually used at a badass moment. They use Baltimore, Tarzan Boy, um, that got it stuck in my head forever, involving a palm tree. Oh, wee, oh, wee. And I just love that stuff. Um, yeah, it's just a goofy movie. I quote it sometimes. It makes me laugh. Um, it's dated for sure with the humor style, but there's this part in the film that I still love where it's a main, like it, it plays out like a video game too, where you fight the cheap guy, the cheap ninja guys. And then you get up to the boss. He's got a machine gun. It just feels like streets of rage or final fight or some shit. So, um, the main bad guy, um, at the end, he has this machine gun, and Chris Farley's running around the factory hiding. And like, there's this—you're at the point of view of the main bag as he got the gun, and he looks at this pole, and he sees this big white thing hanging out. It looks like Chris Farley's gut, so he shoots it, and it like this uh, this stick with like a pillow falls over, and then you hear, "I'm over here," and then he walks behind the pole, and it's like clearly like CGI, and he's like impeccably hidden behind this and i just laugh every time because it's so dumb and he's like i'm over here um also the the, the part that gets me is like martin tanley before i used to do it all the time um so like i said it's it's hard to dislike something that has become embedded in your soul okay um and but i'm not going to stand here and also i'm not not standing but i'm not going to sit here and be like no this is a five-star movie i don't care if you have um objective facts that it's not I'm not going to tell you that, but I'll tell you what, I like it. I, I now stand by that. Uh, Beverly Hills Ninja, uh, fun, although cheap and <laughs> cheesy.
But hey, it is what it is. Okay, let's hop into those 1970 movies. Though sometimes beaten back, he came again and again against the enemy. Till at the end he came alone from the bloody field. For he alone could triumph. This was a Dracula deed. In summary, President Nixon ordered American troops into Cambodia. He called it an incursion, not an invasion. It lasted for two months. The purpose was to destroy enemy bases and supply lines. At times, that mission was extremely dangerous. Marcus Welby, MD, and the Dick Cavett Show will not be seen tonight, so that we may bring you live cover coverage of the 42nd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Headquarters in Washington, I'm Howard K. Smith. I'm Harry Reasoner in New York. These are tonight's headlines. Rail service across the nation is crippled by the continuing strike of the Railway Clerks Union. President Nixon meets with newsmen in his first nationally televised news conference since late July. Defense counsel says that Lieutenant Kelly had orders from higher up to kill every living thing. They lie. And Secretary of State Rogers pledges that American troops will not be sent back into Cambodia. Howard? Reports tonight on the rail strike from Gregory. And after she let the devil fornicate with her, making the men impotent. All right, the first one up is Death Occurred Last Night by the director here has a name, so I'm going to have to, Dusado Tesari, and he did a couple uh, horror films, but he also did the uh, uh, Pristal for Ringo and Return of, for Ringo, which Arrow put out a while back and I covered. So Death Occurred Last Night, it's not necessarily a horror film, barely a jolly, more of a police procedural, but it has a good mystery element, and it's a very dark film. Man, this is a bummer of a movie, but it's actually really good too, so... We have um, Frank Wolf and Gabrielle Tinty are these two detectives that are kind of assigned to this case of this missing girl. This missing girl is like, uh, she's older, she's like 20, but she's um, has the mentality of a three-year-old. And they say, they explain her as being a nymphomaniac. So um, when she disappears, her, her dad is very worried about her. Um, nobody, nobody can find her and they start to think that she's been taken into an underground prostitution ring. So the cops kind of use a, um, ex pimp or a, a pimp to try to find everything out and they kind of go undergo everything and they have these run in with all these prostitutes and it gets really dark when they discover the body, the death, the body death occurred last night. And so it gets really kind of depressing and frank wolf's obviously kind of cracking a little bit the detectives are cracking there is a beat in here that's played for comedy that i really thought was kind of ridiculous but funny at the same time because these cops have been up forever and they've been interviewing tons and tons of people um because they're kind of bringing everybody out all the prostitutes they find and then they're they're telling their loved ones and their loved ones are devastated that they found out their family members are prostitutes and there's this scene where this one guy's literally pouring his heart out. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I can't believe it. I, I just should have been there for her. And he's like crying and everything. And like Gabriel Tinty is in the background and he's all like half asleep, just flickering the, the light switch on and off. And like Frank Wolf's half out of it staring at him. Frank Wolf's in a bunch of stuff once about a time in the West, The Great Silence. Um, he's in the one with um, Luigi Pastilli, um, the Fra Fernando de Leo movie where they're like two different detectives and they have different sides. One's a lefty, one's a righty, and they're arguing all the time. 
Um, so Frank Wolf's in that one. And what I can't remember, Sicilian? Is it? Oh, I can't think of all these names. There's a lot of them bleed together. Um, and also, Gabriel Tinti was in, uh, he was married to Laura Gemger, so he's in a lot of those Emmanuel movies, including Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. So if Emmanuel is there, I mean, Laura Gemger's there, you're going to look in Gabriel Tinti's probably in the film as well. Um, but he died very young, kind of tragically. Uh, I think like a cancer or something like that. It's kind of sad, very sad. Um, but he's really good in this, and I like the pairing of him and Frank Wolf. And like, I remember looking at the screen here and seeing Gabriel Tinti and Frank Wolf, and it was, both those guys died really young. Frank Wolf committed suicide. So I'm just like, that's a really kind of a bummer right here, you know? But uh, they, they do really well in it. I thought they were uh, good. And Frank Wolf's this character that's not really a nice guy. If that, he's kind of an asshole, but uh, a lot of times you like you, you side with him and sometimes, but he's also like a dick. Like, um, and, and oh yeah, uh, Beryl uh, Cunningham is in here as well. She's in a couple 1970 movies already. She's the uh, she was in Dorian Gray and um, she was in Weekend Murders. So this is the third one she pops up in. She's a prostitute in this one that kind of helps the cops a bit. But uh, eventually they do discover the case. Uh, the case breaks a bit, but uh, they're simultaneously trying to discover what happened along with uh, the father of the victim. And the father of the victim is the most um, sympathetic character in the film. He just is this older guy who has a cane. Um, he's actually in a couple movies I've seen before. I think he's in Girl in Room 2A, which I don't care for very much. But I like this guy in this movie very much. Um, and uh, he starts to discover the case too um, a little bit. And it ends uh, tragic, really tragic at the end of this movie. It's a really strong movie, really kind of uh, more impactful than one would expect and less horror or giallo oriented, more of a just kind of a dark drama, um, sad dark drama. But good stuff, well acted, good cast and everything like that. Good music too. Uh, yeah, would would recommend checking this one out on the rare blu-ray i was sitting here and like they always had this this movie is super loud like you're watching the dialogue it's normal and then all of a sudden the, the music will kick on it's like boom like you're like geez man turn killing me over here with this stuff but anyways uh good flick okay this next one from 1970 we're probably going to come to one of the best acted movies of the 19 of 1970 and that is the man who haunted himself starring roger moore now, Roger Moore, to me, was always... I, I'm not... I, I haven't seen that many James Bond movies. I think I've only seen a handful, maybe a couple even. And I think they're mostly the Pierce Brosnan ones because I grew up and I never had... Um, like uh, I never was big in the James Bond. I didn't dislike him. It just never came to me. So Roger Moore was always the guy he played James Bond once along with a slew of other people I knew. I, I, I just went down this rabbit hole a little bit. There's Sean Connery, of course, Roger Moore. Um, George Lazenby played him once. Timothy Dalton played him a couple times. Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig. And then they have the one-off with David Niven, right? Um, so those are all the Bonds. And I just knew kind of the history of Bond because I found like just that who played them was interesting enough. And Roger Moore did um, quite a bit of them. I think seven or eight of Bond movies. So he had like kind of a... Um, People get he gave the impression that Roger Moore wasn't a great actor. He's kind of a cheesy actor in this. So when I, when I put this in, um, I was like, oh boy. This is not what I expected at all. Um, we have Roger Moore coming in, looking all handsome with a mustache. And it's very funny because I started listening to the commentary. And Roger Moore's like, I look great. He's, he's on the commentary. He's like, man, I look dashing with a mustache. You're great with a mustache. And I was like, <laughs> I started laughing. I was like, because his mustache is impeccable. He's so, she's very sharply dressed. Um, this is kind of like a midlife crisis movie, if that makes any sense. A midlife horror crisis movie. So Roger Moore is this like business guy that he works for this corporation. Um, and uh, they're about to have a, a merger of some sort or, or a kind of buyout for this other company called EGO, which I actually listened to a podcast. I didn't register this. I'm not going to take credit for this. They were talking about this. The, the company's called EGO. Ego. Perfect, right? So one day he's uh, driving home 
and he starts speeding. This isn't the very beginning of the movie. He's speeding really quickly, and uh, something like overtakes him. It seems like uh, this kind of phantom or something. His car seems to change in his in his mem- in his head, and he gets in this accident. And while he's on the uh, operating table, um, a double heartbeat comes on the monitor. They they lose him for a second. When he comes back, a double heartbeat comes. They end up saving him, right? And when he comes back. Um, he just, something's not exactly right. Um, he starts to have these strange occurrences where people are like, oh, I just, I, you were just here. What are you doing here now? Or, um, hey, we plan to go out for drinks and uh, we made this plan yesterday and I showed up to your house. Like, um, And he's like, what are you talking about? And his wife starts to suspect him cheating and he's just very baffled and confused. But there appears to be a double. There appears to be two Roger Moores. And this Roger Moore, uh, other personality, which he never sees for the longest time, appears to have more of a sexual appetite. More seems to be that super ego that's going out there and uh, making all these deals and all these kind of hanging out with the guys that he stopped hanging out with years ago but some of the some familiar faces within here too we have Thorley Walters who I love he's one of Hammer's best character actors he's in Vampire Circus and he's in a couple other ones and he's always great he's tremendous in this one he's kind of this uh, uh, ba- uh, bombastic kind of guy who's like I won't tell you Wolf what I saw you know that kind of guy um, he's just really great in here and there's just a slew of these guys like that in here um, um, Freddie Jones is in here, another one that they mentioned, and I think I've seen him in a couple movies. Um, he plays this weird kind of doctor kind of guy. But there's also other familiar faces that I recognized right away, a couple who appear in Hammer movies, of course. But Roger Moore is playing this dual performance, and he is fantastic. Um, seeing his facial expressions, especially when they do the 60s, 70s kind of crazy, weird techno lighting and stuff, and blues and greens and shit, and he's just kind of losing his mind, especially at the very ending, it's really intense. Um but his facial expressions of confusion, he's like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't here. They're just perfect. They're really well, they're, they're un, I don't want to say they're understated, but they're, they're not over the top until they have to be. Like, it's a slow build into badness. And he does exactly what I would fucking, what most people would do. Like, I feel like he plays it like straight. He doesn't lose his mind completely. But there's this great moment where he goes to the doctor and the doctor tells him, well, why don't you try to embrace your other side, embrace this, because you're 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 basically um, repressing all this stuff inside of you, this, this colorful aspects about you. Why don't you just dress down a little different, dress up, maybe have some fun with it. And um, that's that kind of screws him over in the end when he confronts his doppelganger or his double but uh yeah it has this this weird supernatural element to it uh just a really well-made movie well acted um the music's great and i can't believe how good this print looks from kino this is a it's, it's got to be a 4k scan but it looks amazing um a lot of these studio canal releases this is a studio canal look fantastic and kino this is one of the best looking blu-rays i've seen as far as picture quality is concerned i was kind of blown away by it but uh yeah this is a really good movie with a really tremendous uh, performance by Roger Moore. Can't say anything more than that because he's he's great in it, um, and it's a it's a really good performance. And uh, there is a twenty little twenty minute thing on here with Stuart Gordon and Joe Dante talking about their love of the film and the interesting kind of doppelganger double movie. And then there's a commentary with a I think it's a film historian, maybe one of the producers, and Roger Moore. Roger Moore seems like a cool cat. Um, he mentions that one time somebody said, "When are you going to do a serious movie?" And he's like. And when I'm talking about the bomb movie, he's like, well, this costs $35 million. I think they're pretty serious. And he's like, I get what you mean, though. Like, he seems like a cool guy. He seems like a, a fun guy, too. So, and a smart guy. 
No, uh, and he seems like he likes movies to a certain extent or appreciates the artistic merits of some movies, and he appreciated doing this one. Uh, he was happy to do it. It's a great performance. So The Man Who Haunted Himself. Okay, here's another one from Kino, and this is a rebuy here and a rewatch. I had these Twilight Time of Scream and Scream Again, um, and I couldn't leave a Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing movie on the table. I had to watch this one. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, the guy, the killer in this, he looks like the guy from The Devils, the crazy kind of priest uh, one. No, I forgot the look that up to double check but it sure looks like him there's a couple other familiar faces in here some hammer faces the uh young kid from uh, is it scars of dracula's in here as a young doctor and just a bunch of familiar faces right the director was his name gordon hessler he also did uh cry of the banshee and uh, the oblong box which i've not seen oblong box i've seen cry of the banshee also 1970 also vincent price so scream and scream again this is a really strange film i always laughed at the trailer and the trailers from hell on here mick garris point pokes it out points it out too um they're like advertising all the people in it they're like vincent price and they show a picture of vincent price and he's like chris lee and chris lee and then they're like peter cushing and it's just like show some other guy because peter cushing is in the movie for five fucking seconds right um uh it's not peter cushing this the guy they show is like the villain nazi type character so this is a bizarre ass movie i don't even know how to go about it part police procedural part spy espionage part mad scientist horror film it's all these kind of mixed things in one and nothing quite works a hundred percent let me say, um, I, I don't really love this movie. I think it's okay. And I felt the same way the first time. I just had to rewatch it, uh, just in case my feelings changed about it. I just, like I said, I couldn't leave a Vincent Price Christopher Lee pre Cushing movie on the table when I had it. I would have watched any of those classic actors in the 19, for 1970. So, uh, what we have here is there's a killer going around and he seems to be draining the blood of the victims. Um, and when they finally catch the guy with a police sting, he jumps and he runs into this kind of barn and he opens this vault and he jumps in this vat of acid, completely melting, right? Um, it turns out that the vat of acid is Vincent Price. Uh, Vincent Price is, he's a scientist. And the funny thing is one of the first victims was actually worked with Vincent Price. So kind of all eyes point to him. We keep cutting back to this weird kind of like, they're not Nazis, but they might as well be Nazis. They're part of this weird country, kind of like building power and everything like that, that keeps all their, all their people that live there under like, like, uh, the iron fist or whatever the hell you would call it. Um, iron curtain, whatever. I don't know. Um, so anyways, uh, they're Nazis for, for the sake of the movie. And this guy is just, uh, super strong and super weird. And, uh, seems like a sadist and he, he starts to kind of move among the ranks there. And he starts to hear about these murders and he kind of heads over to the United States to kind of try to find Vincent Price. Then we also have Christopher Lee, who appears to be some sort of higher up um, FBI kind of type guy or CIA or whatever. So we've all these characters, but the main characters are kind of the police officer and this young doctor trying to figure out the case. Um... It's, it's kind of sloppy in some aspects. There's a lot of stuff going on. Like a lot of the performances, they'll have these character actors that you've seen in a bunch of stuff. They'll be in it for 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes, 35 seconds, and then get killed. And you're like, I really would have liked to see that guy more, or I really would have liked to see him a little bit more, and he's gone. And a lot of the deaths are really cheesy. Um, it's funny because they mentioned, I was just talking about Beverly Hills Ninja, where uh, Haru tries to give um, Will Sasso that a siashu massage thing to knock him out and literally the bad guy in this movie is giving people that to kill them 
That's what he does. He just grabs this and he's like, eh. <laughs> uh, people get melted by acid. There's these super strong, like, uh, people created. Um, there's some funny gag stuff with this guy constantly losing his limbs. Um, I don't know. This movie's not necessarily amazing or anything, but it's not super horrible. It's it's all right. I would give it, like, a slight pass. I don't love it. Um, there's two cuts on here. Um, one, U the UK print and the US print. The US print has subtitles, so I watched that one. The UK print does not. Um, what else is on here? And then there's a trailer from Hell with Mick Garris and an audio commentary with Tim Lucas, which I wish I would have got a chance to listen to. But all in all, I'm not that big of a fan of the film. I love the cover art, so I kind of just avoid it, even though context is key to everything, and I probably would have showed a little bit more appreciation if I would have got a chance to listen to that Tim Lucas commentary. But uh, I'm digging what Kino's doing. They're putting out, re-putting out a lot of those old Vincent Price ones that Scream had or Twilight Time had that went out of print. So um, only 15 bucks on a lot of them on their site, so I'll probably be rebuying a lot of those if they have new features or new prints or anything like that so anyways love price he's he's all right decent in it cushing uh, cushing's underutilized lee's okay in it um it's not i love christopher lee but it's not the best lee performance or anything like that it's not like uh something amazing but uh yeah that is scream and scream again okay hitting to the last 1970 movie and that is just franco's nightmares come at night and this is uh was this the fourth? I, I know he directed like five or something like that, but only four were released in 1970. So this is the fourth one. The last Jess Franco in 1970. This has, who's in this one? I want to mention, make sure I mention this. I know Soledad Miranda is in here. Yeah, and I think uh, Jack Taylor has a tiny role. Of course he does. And uh, the, the doctor from all of his movies and kind of like Count Dracula is in here. So uh, this one I'm going to be a little bit more inept on. Um, because the movie's a little inept. So the story is, um, we have this woman who's suffering from mental illness and basically the, she is in a lesbian relationship with another woman who constantly is gaslighting her to think she's crazier than she is. Um, there appears to be some sort of money plot to steal uh, everything that she has, some sort of gothic kind of twisted plot or anything. There's these weird kind of people hanging out in her house, kind of sprawling around naked. One is, which is Soledad Miranda. Every once in a while we have a sex scene that's in the dark and apparently someone we believe is her the the so-called girl suffering from mental illness comes in and kills them um it's just really kind of uh, sluggish, uh, and it's probably the weakest of uh, Jess Franco's movies from 1970. I mean, he did have some good ones, Count Dracula, The Bloody Judge, and Eugenie, all better than this, all more interesting than this one. Um, I just think this movie was kind of semi-lost, so I think that that's not cool that it's finally been released. It's um, There's some really dark spots in the movie. Um, literally, there's a scene that's so dark, all I could see was a white ass that hadn't been suntanned. Like, I was just like, can't see anything except, like, I think that so an ass on the screen that's not been suntanned. It's just a, a pale butt sitting there. Um, yeah. So on the features, there's an audio commentary with Tim Lucas, Eugenie, A Nightmare of Sex a Charade, a 20-minute documentary by Daniel Goulet on the making of the film, including interview footage with Jess Franco. Jess, what are you doing now? An eight-minute eight homage to Jess Franco. Um, interviews with Franco's friends and collaborators and a visual essay on the creation of the HD master. I wish I should have watched some of this stuff. Um, I just wasn't overly enthused with this one. Um, there is kind of a, I don't even want to say it. There is kind of a twist at the very end of the film, but you kind of assume that there's gaslighting happening and everything like that. A lot of sex and nudity, if that's your thing, um, which I never really mind uh, that stuff being in there. And uh, I just was more of a fan of Jess's other movies. I am glad it got a release because it's one of the rare Soledad Miranda performances. She wasn't in that very many movies before she died tragically um and yeah she, she always looks great um and just franco probably would have used her in every freaking movie until she uh, you know uh but anyways that's nightmares come at night uh 
not necessarily something that really stands in my mind very much. Sorry. Hey guys, what's up? This is uh, Blindspot, because neither of us had seen it. And this is The Skin I Live In, um, starring Antonio Banderas and Dr. Poison from Wonder Woman. I can't think of her name. It's funny that I'll know, like, she's probably like an Academy Award winning actor. So I'm like, she's Dr. Poison, because that's where my mind goes. Uh, this is directed by Pedro Almodovar. He's pretty much a, um, well well-respected uh, director, uh, kind of a cult director, and I've not really seen that many films by him. I think this might be the only film I've seen the entire thing. I've seen uh, most. I've seen parts of Bad Education. He's done a bunch of others, El Matador. Um, I have a box set that I've been meaning to get to, but yeah, I'm kind of uh, terrible about that. Instead, I watched, you know, like tons of trauma movies and Tempe movies instead of watching what I should be. Uh, so yeah, this is a <laughs> crazy movie. Um, in America, like I said, Growing up, we knew Antonio Banderas as more of an action star and stuff like Mask of Zorro and Desperado. And uh, he was pretty well respected in uh, Spain and everything with a lot of these movies. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of him and uh, Pedro coming back together to make a movie. I, I don't know how long, what was the year before that when they worked together. But uh, this is pretty heavy stuff. I had actually had heard spoilers before I watched this. So we're going to have spoilers as well. Um, it's, uh, but as, as just to get it over with, I, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was really well made. Kind of a weird eyes without a face, more sexual stuff in there. You as well? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, in the same vein of like eyes without a face. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was good. I, I have seen Bad Education. That was the only one of this. Yeah. Guys, movies I've seen. I, I remember really liking that one when I had seen it. But I mean, that was years 13 ago. years ago. Yeah, probably, probably somewhere around there. Um, so, so anyways, uh, the film, boy, the structure's pretty wild. I, it opens up and uh, Antonio Banderas is like a um, world-class uh, plastic surgeon. He works and deals with skin and he seems to be trying to make this... Um, this uh, synthetic skin via Darkman, that's right. Synthetic uh, flesh. Synth synthetic flesh. What was Dr. X? Mm -hmm. um, make this synthetic uh, skin. <laughs> I can't. That just got on Blu-ray recently. I'll have to get it. Huh. Um, yeah. And, and you think that he's probably trying to help a burn victim. He has this uh, young woman locked in this room that he keeps completely isolated, constantly on video surveillance. And he has... Uh, what I would say like a caretaker there as well. And these are the only people in the house. Mm -hmm. All the other people have been fired recently. So it's really kind of a strange thing. You don't know if this is a science experiment or something like that, or she's so delicate she can't go out. Um, it's just a bizarre uh, a turn of events, to be honest. And then we kind of uh, had this character come in called the Tiger and some real gross, uh, really rough kind of sexual stuff come in. And then we start to have this relationship between Antonio Banderas and the, the I guess, what do you say, the, not victim, but... Um, the patient. The patient is the word yeah. I'm looking for. Uh, go through. And we start to have these kind of flashbacks in their mind. But uh, the way they do it is, is rather confusing, where Antonio Banderas kind of flashes back, and you see some things about his life and his like wife and all sorts of like tragedy that happened to him. And then... We start to see dreams of the young woman. And I remember the first thing you asked me. So there will be kind of spoilers here. Where you say, why is she dreaming of him, this character? Mm -hmm. And was Antonio Banderas' dream, you saw him beforehand too, right? So right. you know that there's something up. And uh, the reveal is pretty, pretty bonkers. And opens up a lot of really hazy, kind of disgusting questions. That one could look at it as an exploitation film in the sense that you're saying the ultimate cruelty or the ultimate revenge is to 
spoiler, turn someone that did something unspeakable to a family member of yours into that sex and then do what they did to your family member in the same vein to make it look like your wife who has passed away in a horrible fire. So Mm -hmm. um, Pedro Almodovar is a really progressive filmmaker, transgressive too, I would say. So I'm wondering if he's trying to get the aspect to say, this is what it's like to be trapped in a body that's not yours. Or is he trying to go just in that perverse exploitation way? Or both? You know, I don't know if there is a message for this uh, movie. I I mean... There is murky sexual politics for sure. There's murky sexual politics, but I mean, you know, that's just murky sexual politics. I don't know if there's like... Yeah, I could be wrong. You know, I'm not a film expert. Or or you don't know what he is thinking in his mind. Right, you know, I I don't know, uh, because I think this is Spanish, you know, I I don't know Spanish, so I don't pick up on, like, the nuance of language, but, you know, I think it is just, you know, sexual exploitation in a fun way. I mean, it's... It's it's fun! It's fun, it's it's fun. I I like how the story unravels. It unravels really well, and there's um, a lot of twists and turns. Right, everybody fucking lies to each other. Uh, Can I say fucking on this? Yeah, okay. It's kind of funny that people expect it. Sometimes I slip on my language, but they'll they'll be watching literally a movie where a guy turns a, right. a rapist into somebody that looks like his wife so he can rape them to get revenge for his daughter. It's just like, and then you cuss, and they're like, that's absurd. I'm like, dying on the <laughs> No, but it's funny <laughs> to think that. It's like, you're talking about the most crazy, insane right. things, and then somebody's like, you talked about slaughter vomit dolls, but then you said the F word. That's, that's where I draw yes, the line. Yes. But, oh, you um, said boobies too many uh, times. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. I like it. The, the reveal at the very end when, uh, the character confronts, uh, at, at the, the dress house or whatever, the dress place where she, where, uh, at the he worked, very end? the very end, he walks in and he's at the woman and he's in the disguise and he had been missing for years. Oh, that yeah, reveal that is great. so heart touching. Like yeah. it's such a dramatic piece with mm-hmm. expert acting that I literally started to tear up during it. I, w- I was taken back by it. Um, yeah, and the sexual exploits. I also love the idea of somebody watching this movie. I doubt somebody would be watching a Pedro Almodovar movie and get offended by something like this. But watch the movie and being like, oh, she's so hot. And then like getting off on like the gross <laughs> rape scenes. And then they come to realize that it was a man. And like, oh. <laughs> I would just love somebody to watch it and be like, oh, but Paul. <laughs> Although to be fair, it is a male actor and a female actor. Yeah, they they yeah. don't. Um... Yeah, they don't do that. Like, yeah, they don't take the male and dress him up as a female. Uh, there, there might be a scene, but there I, might I be don't a think slight so. in the beginning when he started right. to transform. Yeah. But there was the uh, the scene where uh, that movie K Nine, where they literally take like uh, it's a prison block cell block, and mm-hmm. um, the characters are playing like trans characters and they're actually played by females and stuff. They actually didn't get trans or any of that. And I was just like, oh, it came out like. Right before a lot of the people would be upset about that kind of stuff in like their 2010 or something like that. Because I know that nowadays they would really want trans people to play those yeah. roles and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I thought this was a great movie. And it's really well acted. Antonio Banderas is like cold, man. He's cold. You know, mm-hmm. I, this is going to sound really shitty. But anybody married to him, you can kind of see why they'd carry on an affair with a horrible person or <laughs> or, or, or kill themselves. That uh, piece of dialogue that the... Um, the uh, caretaker or the like the house caretaker gives is great when she says she uh, she uh, ended up taking the path of the window and years later something she she delivers it much better her daughter oh she she ended up following you know the same road that her mother did through the window <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's dark uh yeah but it's it's really bothersome and, and it's really murky he likes to mur- like like blur those lines because the rape scene 
it, it's like, it's such a, you know what I mean? Like, it, I hate doing this because then we get into the sexual politics like straw dogs where it's like, well, that first rape was bad, but not as bad as the second rape. <laughs> so we have levels of how bad rape is. And it's just like, I don't want to get on that. Like, it's all bad. And I just don't well, know. It, a it, turd it, is a turd, right? Right. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, was there actual rape? You know, did he rape her? Um... You know, he does kind of stop when she says no, but, you know, she freaks out anyway. And she also has the mental capacity of a three-year-old. Right. She doesn't but, know, but he should have known, but he was high, so... Right, and he, so he was too high to remember, and Antonio Banderas was... Doesn't care. Yeah, doesn't care. He saw what he saw, or thinks what he saw, and, you know, the daughter has a mental breakdown, so and, she And can't. sees him as the rapist, because he's the one who right. found her, which is... Really devastating. It's right. just like a, it's kind of a exercise in cruelty at the same mm -hmm. time. It's like, can we make this situation even more twisted? Well, you know, it's 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 the same thing. I I, I think that that I pointed out in um, it was it M with uh, where they all want to kill Peter where they all want to kill Peter Lorre, and you know, the only evidence they have that Peter Lorre is the killer is you know the accusation of a blind man. <laughs> that sounds you know, ridiculous in the but, court but of that, law. But that, that is what... And, and as the audience, we know he's the killer, so we want him dead. Right, but... but did we even witness the kills itself? You know, I don't think you ever witnessed the kills. I think it's just... Mob mentality at its right. finest. You know, like, like where, where is the guilt? I mean, you know, how, how do you come to that conclusion? I mean, maybe he didn't rape her. That reminds me of that song, I'm afraid of mob mentality that makes otherwise normal people go blind. That's such. That's a true line. That's an Andrew Jackson G head sign. It's a weird oh, fucking right. reference, but it's the truth. The mom mentality. But mm -hmm. this is different than that. This is different. Um, but man, I, it's just like if you were Antonio Banderas and you had been through what you had been through, mm -hmm. maybe at fault of your own for just being like seemingly an uncaring person. We don't see him all all the time before that. I don't like. <laughs> in that situation, I could see myself going that far. Can you? If I could, I mean, I'm too impatient to do that i'd be like i'd just be like hack it off and then be like shove like a tube and they're like you're done because <laughs> i do not know anything i'd be like martin in human centipede part two doing the, <laughs> like, ah, doing the sex change operation i'd put lipstick it'd be like when somebody puts lipstick on a blow-up doll and tries to pretty it up i'm like you're done <laughs> um I, I think it's a great film mm -hmm. it's not exactly an easy one and i feel like this director obviously likes to blur the lines in a lot of things because he does that in bad education too like isn't that movie like about a love story but it starts off as like a rape but it's the not the typical rape you would expect like it's the actual person who you know what i mean i can't remember it's like he's drunk and he gets on top of him and forces him yeah it's i like, remember what the cover looked like it's like a half man face <laughs> half girl face yeah. and it's like red and it was three dollars at big lots 20, right 15 years ago right and i enjoyed it when i watched it i i um, it's been a long time, but yeah, um, I, I like I don't have as much to say about the movie as I should. I mean, there's some weird, quirky stuff in here that I notice is in a lot of more modern Spanish films, like uh, the tiger literally has to dress in the circus outfit to escape. That's kind of a nice little touch. I was very mad at the mother who mm -hmm. let him in. I would have never let him in. Y you know, it, it's your son, but still, no. I, I know why she did it, and, and, and I mean, the the mother thought that that. I think more or less the whole family had to fucking perish. Maybe she did. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, she clearly didn't want Antonio Banderas doing what he was doing. Um, and even in the scene, she said, like when Banderas had the gun, she said, kill, kill her, kill her. Um, you know, like, 
it, it's a story about a, you know a bunch of rich broken people you know getting it's revenge for family. something that nobody ever did anything to anyone to um, ah. eh, it's weird it's weird but it, it, it's a fun movie and it's definitely worth a watch so who's um, your favorite character is this a mom absolutely the maid the maid. Yeah, maid yeah, the, yeah, the maid she's like mother. the maid mother and pops no she is the she mother. is the mother yeah, yeah. she's both she's tiger yeah, and the, antonio bender they the they don't know that she never told them that she was their mom nor did she well she told the tiger but she was her mom but antonio Banderas she never told i i don't know antonio Banderas's name doctor something movie. doctor yeah. doctor psycho doctor Banderas. doctor Banderas. um <clears throat> no I, I thought that she she was fantastic um and this shot erotically at points, like the stuff, yeah. not like all the sex, the rape scenes, but some of the other stuff is, well, I think kind of he does eroticize, sexualize a lot of this stuff, obviously. But well, yeah, I mean, it, this is a movie about sex and really so is bad education. It looks great though. I mm-hmm. like the uh, cinematography's top notch. The acting's top notch. Oh yeah, it was, um, it was fantastic. The story structure is really well done too. And uh, I, I knew the twist, so I was just like looking at you and you're like, why are you were like why are they flash, flashing back to him? I don't understand I, why I, she's dreaming. Of I, him. Yeah, I but my, my biggest problem is I didn't know what part was a time skip and what part wasn't. And I I think just because of the way that the narrative was presented and then once I realized, oh, we're still in the time skip, um then you realize exactly like, the twist. Then, then I realized the shit. twist right when, away. When you realize the twist, where you're like, I'm like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I was like, I've never seen a movie like that, though. Have you? Yeah, I watch a lot of weird anime and read a lot of weird Well, there comics. is that really good episode of Tales from the Crypt <laughs> called The Assassin. Um, you, spoiler for the Tales from the Crypt season six episode, The Assassin, with Corey Feldman and uh, Jonathan Banks and... I don't remember who else is in that one, but it's a really good twist in here. Um, they come to kill this. They track this guy, these assassins, that this person is assassin. These are government officials. They have to kill this guy, right? And uh, the the wife's home. And they're like, well, where's your husband? He's at work. Well, like, we're going to have to hold you here. Your husband is an awful, awful assassin and killer. We're going to have to take him out. And she's like, oh, no. And then she slowly starts to seduce them and kill all three of the assassins. Come to register. At the very end, the twist is, is hilarious because... The husband, there's a thing in the very beginning when they leave. He's like, you're a wonderful woman. And the wife always says, of course, silly. What else would I be? And then at the very end, this is definitely probably something that would be problematic now. I guess people would say, but says, of course, silly. What else would I be? And looks at the camera because the, yeah, actually. Yeah. No, no. I had a sex change to, 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 to blend in with society because they were looking for a man. I think there's a Walter Hill movie that recently came out like that too, where there's a male assassin that gets a sex change to a female to kill a bunch of people. Is Walter Hill the guy that did? um, Streets of Fire and Hard Times and the Warriors. I swear that guy's gay. I never, ever pictured that ever. I, I, because he's Sam Peckinpah light and you think Sam Peckinpah's gay. Well, you just talked just because about, just Lisa made a Vega movie about, about a sex change you just said. He it has nothing to do with Streets it. Streets of Fire is homoerotic. Um, all 80s movies are homoerotic. Oh, all of Walter Hill's movies are like like crazy homoerotic. With the exception of the Bronson one. Hard Times? Hard Times. I didn't find that one to be as homoerotic. But I would <laughs> still ship this? everyone in it. Um, but, you know. the, I, don't want, I don't even want to think about anybody in Hard Times having sex. I did. I did. I am right now. Strother Martin and the bald guy from The Longest Yard. Okay, that's a nightmare for everybody. Um, so what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, um, 
I, I told you. I the forgot. Blind Spot, you wanted the Day of the Triffids? Yeah, that's what we're the doing. The 60s one. And I think that Freddie Francis direct that. Neither of us has seen it. We've been meaning to watch it forever. There's and more than one? There's a... Um, is there a 50s or a 60s? I think there's an older one. And then there was a TV one in the 80s, which I think was a miniseries possibly. Mm-hmm. And then I think they had a more modern miniseries, of Day of the Triffids. We're going to do the 60s classic one first. Is, it, is that the play. first one? Yeah. Okay. We'll do the first one. Whatever the first one is is what All we're right. going to do. I want the one that is specifically referenced in Rocky Horror. Because that's the only one you haven't seen, I think. No. No, there's, there might be a few more in this song that I could probably pull up, but... Um, I'm I'm really tired right now, so... Yeah, you've been out for 24 hours? Yeah. We're out of here, guys. All right, bye. Okay, we're going to get into the questions, comments, and all that stuff. And last week I asked you favorite movie to watch on a rainy day. So Adam Watson, I love how it's rats that defeat the... Oh, I don't want to spoil anything here, but he basically goes to a, a spoiler on um, the Suicide Squad, which I rewatched and I still like it quite a bit. Um, yeah. So uh, the Maniac, to answer your question, who likes to roll in the hay... Uh, Igna from Young Frankenstein. Thankfully, no assault involved in that. Favorite rainy day horror movie is maybe too predictable. I gotta go with Seven. That or From Beyond because all that wet goo. Yeah, Seven's got a great scene where Brad Pitt's chasing down the, uh, the, uh, trench coat, blacked glove, hatted killer. That's good stuff. Since, uh, Ravenous was mentioned in this video, do you think we need more cannibal westerns? Ravenous and Bone Tomahawk are the only two I can think of. We need more cowboys versus cannibal movies. Um, I- the two we got are good. I don't know how many we need more. If there were more made, I would watch them. But I'm not going to... Uh, I don't know. It's a small genre. It's kind of a niche genre. Um, Isimisio, I love rainy overcast days. Growing up in Seattle, that was what my ideal day was like. Blanket, uh, rainy day, hot tea, chocolate, coffee, and horror, movie, horror films. Those are slashes. She wasn't drinking all three of them. Um... So many great titles that are compatible with a rainy day. Psycho franchise, first and foremost, where the rain actually holds significance in the narrative. Deathline slash raw meat. The drip, drip, dripping sounds. Slight sepia um, tones aesthetic. Sepia, I always say that word wrong. And that overall wet feel really adds to the mood. I love it. Uh, the Ring remake filmed in Seattle. Lots of Korean horrors that are filmed in dreary setting. Hagazusa, The Lighthouse, and any great black and white horror film. The Iron Rose, Symptoms, and I could go on. Symptoms is a great one. Um, Bedeviled is fantastic, but I wanted a different ending from it to feel satisfied. I agree a lot of the Marvel movies feel tedious and come off like popcorn flicks. Never really been crazy about them, but it has its loyal fan base for sure. Glad Jeremy mentioned The Last Circus because I still need to see that one. It's been on my list forever. Last Circus is fantastic. Um, Gwynplaine... um, what I really found interesting that I learned about Cabin in the Woods recently is that Heather Langenkamp was one of the primary special effects makeup artists on the film. Yeah, she ended up marrying a special effects artist, I believe. And, uh, yeah, um, she worked on the Dawn of the Dead remake, too, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Adam Watson, in Suicide Squad, I found most of the humor to just cringe. He's not talking about in the Suicide Squad. He's talking about the original, I believe. And I love animated movies with them, too. I think they work better and are more fun than the live-action movies. George Hilton. Hey, George. Uh, just kidding. For me, the best movie to watch on a rainy day would have to be American Werewolf in London. Ilk Vomit. Ah, uh, that's the day of the dead ran I was waiting to hear. Also, I wouldn't say it's the best movie to watch on a rainy day, but one of my favorites is The Goonies because it has that wet quality that we're talking about the de- Deadly Spawn has. So imagine Deadly Spawn was my favorite one. So yeah, yeah, The Goonies is that. Um, the, the docs, they're, they're The Goonies. Yeah, yeah, great, great choice. Uh, Nick Mua, firstly, I love the appearance of your cats. More of that, please, sir. Or better yet, review Disney's The Aristocrats with one of them. 
I don't think they could have a good attention span on that. Living in Belgium, one has to get accustomed to many rainy, a rainy afternoon. Naturally, because naturally, movies become an escape. I'll give you my top three films that help me forget those rain clouds. One. The Party, hilarious classic movie featuring the excellent Peter Sellers. Two, Mary Poppins, this spoonful of Disney sugar helps any medicine go down. Those that don't like can go fly a kite. And three, Matilda, featuring Danny DeVito at his best. Pure feel-good movie magic. Yeah, Matilda's really funny. But Matilda, we can't afford a new... I li- oh, he's so funny. He directed that one too, didn't he? Um, questions. Your review of My Heart Won't Beat Unless You Tell It To reminded me of Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Both seem to be horror dramas in which vampirism is a sickness rather than magical. Could you recommend some other films that have this or similar premise Ooh, i know i had someone i was watching it at the top of my my head my, my mind now i'm kind of blanking um i will basically mention that the movie i zombie feels um it's more zombie film obviously but it feels more uh, scientific than any supernatural aspect and it's just a really kind of slow depressing turn into a zombie um as far as uh vampiric stuff that feels more scientific and i know i'll forget a bunch right when i'm off the podcast i'm trying to think about it um i am legend has a um I'm not talking about I Am Legend movie, but Last uh, Last Man on Earth has that kind of scientific element to it where he's trying to figure it out. The book, so much, so more, so forth more, even though there is a shout out to kind of classic vampires at the same time. So let me think here. Ones that handle it more as a scientific approach than a, um, uh, a supernatural approach. Oh, geez, man. I'd have to get back to you on that one. Um, that one I meant to do some research on. But sometimes you'd be reading these all day or talking about movies and you just literally, you you, you have mind blanks or anything like that. Um, man, I just don't want to give up on that answer, but I'm just not coming to anything in my head right away. Uh, scientific. Not coming. Which version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers disturbs you most? I'll tell you the best is the 56. Um, that's my personal favorite. Um... I haven't watched the 70s one in a long time. And then there's the 90s one. Those I've only seen those three. But I, I'll go with the original, 56. With the world seemingly crazy lately, would humanity be better off as pod people? I mean, humanity wouldn't. The animals would. Everything else would be better off but us than pod people, okay? Because if you're a pod person, you don't have feelings. You don't have emotions. You're basically all controlled by hive mind. And it's just completely pointless to exist. There's no reason for anything. It would be, there'd be no art, there'd be nothing. But everything else around us, like the animals, they would be better because we probably wouldn't go out of their way to kill them. Serial killers probably wouldn't exist. I mean, there'd be a lot less violence, but there would be no humanity in general. If you, it, it, The problem is humanity wouldn't be better off with pod people because pod people aren't human, so they're not for humanity. You see what I mean? Kind of weird question. Um... Adam Watson, I love Creep Tales. It's cheap and goofy, but so much fun. Ricky Richards, people say Cabin in the Woods is awful. That was one of the favorite horror movies from that era. It, I think it's great. I, I basically was just reading a couple bad reviews and laughing. Adam Watson, you look really young and dashing with that haircut, Mr. P. Thank you. And Ilk Vomit, are you going to review the Fear Street trilogy on Netflix? I, I probably will get to it eventually. Kentuckinator, Rick Sloan did indeed direct Hobgoblins. You are a scholar and a gentleman, but... Here's the correction. I made a mistake. I thought that the credit said Rick Salone, but it actually said Rod Slane. It was not Rick Salone who directed that segment in Creep Tales. It was Rod Slane. My bad. 
Travis Linscom, isn't Carnival of Blood in the Arrow American Horror Project set, or is that a different one? That is Malatesta's Carnival of Blood, a really weird, bizarre movie that I think is worth a look. Ken Coakley, when I think of something to watch on rainy days, I first think of Friday the 13th, which is... Uh, which is the date as I write this. A lot of the movies have their climax during rainstorms. Or is it the Mandela effect happening? Um, no, 5 has a rainstorm at the end for sure. As a very quick aside, as I am watching the final chapter, I think Rob, the outdoorsman, who is uh, avenging his sister from 2, was my second favorite character from all the movies and should have survived and made him the one person Jason hated because he was the person he just couldn't kill. He could have been a poor man's Dr. Loomis. I do watch the Amityville Horror on rainy days since the scene where the DeFeo family is murdered is during a storm, and then in the end they leave during another storm. According to the real George Lutz, there was really a severe storm the night they left. That opening in Amityville 2 is pretty cool in the storm. Lastly, honorable mentions uh, to the two best stormy films, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, especially since Mary Shelley conceived the story during a storm and both creatures reanimated with lightning. Ken Coakley. Uh, again, I wanted to get your opinion on the pro- proposed last film called Twilight of the Dead. Um, it's just got a green light and Romero's second wife, Christine, is involved. They say it's going to be the definitive ending, but I had heard that George Romero was giving the Dead movie rights to Cameron C. Romero's son. I read the original Dead Day script that George couldn't afford to make with the crisis ending the same way it began, with their, no explanation. In a, the script, a character who was shot in the chest didn't come back and was covered with a blanket. At the end of the script, the blankets move and it was just the wind. The same wind blows a piece of paper that lands against the blanket and on the paper it reads, The End. I promise. Stay scared George Romero which I thought was the best way to end it I also think that was a great way to end it the, the character in that in that script is Miguel Salazar actually I, I read that script he dies right in the beginning Road shoots him on purpose I believe maybe he dies in the in the jungle in the very beginning of the movie and they throw a blanket over him and they leave him I, I, and um, later on um, they go through the jungle and he's not reanimated, I think is what the deal is. There's some real nasty bits in there, too, where Rhodes actually takes one of the characters and shoots him a couple times and hangs him upside down. So when they come back as a zombie, he can torture him. That's, that's a great, it's a cool script, to be honest. And I would have loved to see it. Although the original is still my favorite movie ever made. Um, so is it, do you think it should get the last uh, get the last one in or should Cameron get a shot? I would like to see what Cameron can do. Ah. <sighs> I'd have to see who's going to direct Twilight of the Dead. If you get like a Del Toro or a Tom Savini or a Greg Nicotero in there, and that Twilight of the Dead has like aspects of the original Day of the Dead script, and that's how we're going to end it, I'd love to see it go. I don't want to see them start over. I don't want to see the new Night of the Living Dead. I don't want to see, you know what I mean, the new Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead. I, I just, I would like a definitive ending. You know, if that makes any sense. A good definitive ending with Romero's script, or Romero's script if possible. Um, but uh, if they do that definitive ending and close it out and then Cameron wants to do another movie in that universe, I'm fine with it. But I, I would like to see an ending to the story that has Romero's spin on it. Um, James Higgins, uh, Alien and Stand By Me, Derek B., Porno Holocaust or Cello, Joachim Johansson, Smokey and the Bandit, Colin uh, Johnson, Hard Rain, Jason Fetters, Black Rain, I used to live in Asuka, and Black Rain beautifully shows the urban locations, Bill Casanelli, The Devil's Rain, um, Jason Fetters, Black Rain, I, oh, sorry, Dustin Mills, Rainy Days, Make Me Want to Watch Westerns, The Assassination of Jesse James, and Once About a Time in the West are good candidates, David Luton, Seven is my go-to on a miserable rainy day, David Fincher's brilliant use of rain to create a dark, sinister atmosphere in that film is fantastic, Jamal Potter, Blade Runner, Michael Fisher, uh, Identity, Storm Warning, and Severed. 
Rob Puhinski, pretty much anything from James Whale, especially this, uh, The Old Dark House, as well as The Thing from Another World, 51. Scott McMeehan, for me, I remember watching The Night of the Living Dead for the first time in a rain, cold, fog, uh, cold foggy October day. And to this day, when it starts to rain, it makes me want to open the windows and let the cool, re- raining weather atmosphere come inside the house. Put on Night of the Living Dead and replay that day all over again. The opening scene makes me feel like I'm standing in the cemetery with them. Crazy stuff, and I love it. Ryan Matthew Ziegler, The Evil, 78. Kevin Keegan, um, Dark Water by Haido Nakadas. No, it, um, that's a great movie. Justin Burning, The Fog. Rye Guy, A Few Good Men, The Burbs, Beetlejuice, Misery, The Goonies, The Fog, to name a few. I feel like I could watch almost anything on a rainy day, just a perfect day all around to snuggle up and take it all in. Don't necessarily have to be horror or what have you. A Few Good Men is like comfort food to me. I have many like that, but A Few Good Men I could be in the mood to watch night and day. Just something about it. Stanley Isman, either Castle Freak or Ginger Snaps. Nothing to do with rain, lol. I just really like to watch them on rainy days. Also, Storm Warning and From Beyond comes to mind. Uh, Aaron Mempo, The Devil's Rain. Um, Zachary Puccinelli, I don't get rainy days. Where you live, the sun. Uh, Matthew Hudson, if you're talking metaphorical rain, there are a handful of movies that have power to make me feel better for various reasons. There are They are City Slickers, The Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, Secondhand Lions, and Feel the Dreams. Most are coming-of-age stories, self-discovery, or just stories of friendship, all of which I am a sucker for. If you're talking literal rainstorm, not sure. Maybe the same, actually. Jason, Dustin Patrick, It, 1990, the whole thing. There's a lot of rain in that movie in the beginning. Good choice. Brandon Young, Big Trouble in Little China. Jason Lindbergh, Nightmare City. Christopher Dallier, Slimy Little Bastards, of course. Come on now. Jamie Stone, Halloween 3. There we go. And uh, basically, before we get into the question of the week, I want to do some Patreon shout-outs. Uh, Matt Wells, thank you very much for being a contributor. And I don't think I shouted out David Scott as, as well, so thank you very much for that, too. So the question of the week is... Um, what was, what was the movie that inspired this while watching all these movies? Basically, I wanted a favorite one-off horror performance. Um, an actor, I, I was, it was two evil eyes because I was thinking Harvey Keitel really hasn't done that many horror movies, has he? I don't think so. So what is your favorite one-off horror performance? An actor who doesn't typically do horror movies or hasn't done many horror movies, maybe just one, like Jack Nicholson, for example, uh, with The Shining. I know he's Witches of Eastwick, but come on. Jack Nicholson in The Shining. What is your favorite one-off horror performance in a horror film? So basically an actor who doesn't particularly play in horror films, but did and turned in a knockout performance. What is it? Is it Angel Heart? You know what? Just give me a movie. Give me a name. Give me a couple if you'd like. So anyways, we're going to hop into the update. Okay. Hop into this update. First, we have some from the Ronin Flick sale, uh, Sword of the Valiant with uh, Miles O'Keefe and Sean Connery. Never seen this. I know Pierce Cinema Podcast talked about it a little. It was a good price. Wanted to check it out. Never seen this, like I said. So then we have Rollerball, which uh, I think they put a new scan on this one. I think my dad liked this movie. I think I, I heard him bring it up a couple times. I never did get a chance to watch it. James Caan, futuristic sport. Sounds fun. Sounds right up my alley. And then we have Who Will Stop the Rain. Heard good things about this one. Uh, Nick Nolte, Michael Moriarty, Tuesday Weld. Sounds good. Not seen it. Nick Nolte, good actor. Then we have L.A. Bounty, uh, Sybil Danning, Wings Hauser. Um, not heard very many good things about this one, but hey, with those two, it can't be that bad either, right? Then we have some Severn Films release. We have My Package Came In, Black Boots, Leather Whip, uh, Jess Franco movie. Never seen this one. One of Franco's least seen but wildest efforts. Okay, very cool. Seen a lot of Just Franco recently. 
Then we have the Masturbating Gunman with a classy title like that. Looks like it's signed by the director. Very cool. Um, I know this director did a handful of crazy movies. Um, I had a box set where he did all of them uh, from Australia, Mark Savage. I haven't got a chance to watch it. Subversive put it out. So, yeah. Here, this one sounds wild. Then we have The House of Lost Women, another Jess Franco here. I always worry I'm going to flip the back of the Jess Franco Blu-rays, and there's just going to be tons of nudity. I'm like, i got to hide that. Uh, lucky there. And then this Evil Dead 5, of course. That's right, Evil Dead 5. You, you didn't know there was a 4, but yeah, Evil Dead 5. Um, what's the AK? Beyond Darkness. There we go. Screen Factory put this one out. I imagine the print's better. Clyde Anderson is at a, a Claudio Fagazzo. So, yeah. Then we have Retribution, which I've seen years ago. Um, but this one, this seems heavy. It's a heavy case here. The Ultimate Nightmare. Uh, yeah, I think there's some special features on this one. Uh, I think maybe um, some extended scenes or an extended cut or something like that. So, looking forward to that. Oh, look who's in that. Hoix Axton. That was the name I was trying to think of the other day. I don't know why I was thinking of Gremlins. I was like, what the hell was that guy's name? That's his name. Um, then we have Raiders of Atlantis by Ruggiero Diodato. This is a cool movie, post-apocalyptic deal. Uh, very fun. Uh, Tony King's in this bad boy, if I'm not mistaken. If nobody's seen this one, check it out. Uh, pick this one up. This is a lot of fun action movie. Uh, it's like, it's got a good cast in there. Who else is? It looks like Ivan Rasimo, Tony King. Uh, what the hell is that? Christopher Conley. Yeah, he's in some of those other post-apocalyptic movies. Warriors of the Year 2072, a.k.a. The New Gladiators uh, by Lucio Fulci. Man, I've seen this movie a handful of times, a few times. I really enjoy this one. This one is a blast. I guarantee this Blu-ray looks excellent. Um, yeah, first ever authorized American Blu-ray release plus Riz Ortolani soundtrack. Awesome. So I had never freaking seen this look so clean, I imagine. It's got a great cast. Who is in this one? I know freaking uh, Jared Martin, Fred Williamson. I know uh, Al Cliver's in here. It's a fun movie. Uh, I think Donald O'Brien, is he in that one? I think he's a robot in it. And then we got Endgame by Joe D'Amato. Um, this is actually a really fun movie too. Post-apocalyptic kind of like Running Man style game. George Eastman's in this bad boy. Um, Al Cliver again. So yeah, we got double Al Cliver going here. Some people maybe say Al Cleaver. I've always said Al Cliver. Don't know which is right. It's not even his real name. It's just an Americanized name anyways. So yeah, this is a really fun flick too. This and uh, all three of these. This is These three are badass right here. Those are three of the fun, really fun movies that I enjoyed seeing a couple times. So then we have The Last Severn title, Blood for Dracula, a film by Paul Morrissey. Um, we have a UHD here. Freaking awesome. One of the best vampire movies of all time, Esquire. This is a weird movie. I've not watched it in forever. Can't wait to watch this in 4K. I should. I might pick this one for a You Ain't Seen for Jeremy because I think he'll get a kick out of it. Uh, who'd I care? I wanna, I'm also going to do Flesh for Frankenstein, which I actually prefer, even though it's been years since I've seen him. I'm more of a Frankenstein guy. So, And then we have, what is this? Gotco, School Live, another story. Um, not seen this one. Good price on it. Everyone was eaten. Uh, the good news, the math quiz was canceled. The bad news, it was canceled because everyone was eaten. Oh, no. Um, yeah, classic. So, anyways, that is the update. We're going to hop back to the video. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Mm.